With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we're tonight's entertainment. Take me to the volcano! It's really called this. You have to ask for the vinegar with the mother in it. Oh, come on. Quick I need, no. Seriously. Maybe Bed Bath & Beyond. I don't know. I don't know if we'll have enough time. But uh, everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? Hello there, and welcome to Ready to Unload with Cal and Sam Pete, New York Sports Talk podcast, radio show, the whole thing. Hi. Episode number 127. It is Thursday night. It is 9.30 p.m. Live from Bayside, live from Comac, live from Freehold, New Jersey. It is time for Ready to Unload with Cal and Sam Pete. RTU Sports, it's a podcast. Nice. The snow is coming. Snowpocalypse. Snowmageddon, snowzaster. This whole place is going to be a snowzaster area. Snowcastrophe. It's coming, folks. It's coming. I hope you're prepared. We're prepared to do a great podcast. See what I did? Terrible. Terrible. Uh, let's get right to it. We have a ton to talk about tonight. We're going to be joined by Rich Catino of uh, WFAN.com. He's the Mets beat reporter for WFAN. Uh, Brian and I have been trying to get Rich on the show for a long time. We are ecstatic that he is joining us tonight. Uh, he's uh, a sane, <laughs> sane, rational voice in the New York sports market uh, where that's sorely lacking these days. So we're going to talk to Rich. Uh, he's going to call in eventually uh, at some point. And, of course, we'll talk to uh, Bishop PJ, pop culture variety, uh, a little later on in the program. Uh, We're going to talk about the Islanders and Rangers renewing their rivalry, putting the foil on tonight. We know the final, spoiler alert, did not go well for our boys. Uh, So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about, uh, obviously, uh, the Mets a ton with Rich, but also the Jets, all the locals, A-Rod, more of the PED stuff. Uh, There's something sticking in my craw about what was said about Mike Piazza this week that I do want to talk about, too, with my buddy Cal. So let's get him in here. Uh, for uh, RTU number 127. Cal. Cal. Fe- the, yeah, but I just, on February the 7th, 2013, here he is, the co-host, Brian Calvi. Mr. Brian Calneva Calpino 
caliente. I feel like singing. <laughs> like Phyllis Diller. What is... Hi, Bri. Hi, Steve. What, uh, what Phyllis Diller, huh? That was not Phyllis Diller. Who was that? No. Ethel Merman? No. Ethel Merman or Joanne Worley. Joanne Merman. <laughs> <laughs> laughing. Should I be hitting somebody with my bag now? <laughs> I guess you just start hitting PJ with my bag. What's up, buddy? Are you all geared up for the snow? Uh, white out. Wow. It's coming. Snowpocalypse. 25 minutes online for gas tonight. Come on. Shut 25 minutes. 25 minutes. I'm telling you. It's Sandy all over again, all right? It's crazy. Sandy part two, okay. Well, they're calling, they, they have upped the forecast here in the tri-state area. They're calling for about, you know, between 10 to 15 inches of snow. I know. It, it started out this morning. It was like three to six inches. This was my favorite weather prediction, though. The guy, I think it was like a guy in Boston. He's like, we're going to get anywhere from three to 30 inches. Right. <laughs> like, buddy, you left yourself a ton of leeway there. It's like hashtag cover yourself. <laughs> right. And now with the CYA weather report, here's Champ Bailey. Champ Bailey. Wow, he's doing weather now? He's a cornerback. He can do it all. I know he had a rough... That guy's good. Well, listen. Look, what does it take to be a weatherman? Not much. I mean, we're going to get... That's like the same as saying it's going to be 80 and sunny or we may get two feet of snow. I'm not sure. Could go either way, folks. But prepare for anything. But prepare for anything. Like, what does it take to be a weatherman? I think, as Jerry Seinfeld used to say about a cab driver, I think all you need is a name. You know, I think all you, I think he used to say, I think all you need is a pulse and a name with uh, several uh, symbols in it. Well, uh, it's, it's crazy out there. I don't know if you've been out there. It's uh, it's coming. The snow is coming, and everybody's in, is in a panic. So you waited online for the. Uh, for the gas? Yeah, you know, I had no gas. I had the misfortune of running out of gas today. <laughs> Not literally. I wasn't. I didn't push the car. But. Did we find a way to blame this on your wife? I, I've already tried. Yeah, but it, but it's your car. It's my car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got nothing. You're like, oh, Alice. I mean, you uh, haven't driven it in three years, but it's probably. Well, I mean, you're supposed to remind me when I'm out of gas in my car. I got nothing. So, well, how how did you make out today? I'm fine. You know, yeah. we're all fine here. We don't we don't have to uh, uh drive to commute, so we're good. 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 You know? We stocked up uh, we have a lot of baked beans. The the little guy loves baked beans. We have a lot of canned goods left over from Sandy. Nice. Because don't forget, we didn't lose power. <laughs> I I know. How could I, I forget? Know. I know. You were out for two and a half weeks and we didn't lose we lost power for four hours. All right. I, what do you want from me? No, look, hey, more power to you. I have Sandy guilt. Oh, you're one of those, huh? That's like a thing now. <laughs> Sandy guilt? Hey, let's play this because uh, Rich Catino is on the line. He's actually holding, listening to this nonsense. Great. So <laughs> let's, play, let's play the sponsor thing, Emajiggy. Okay. It's just so radio. Do you have that cart? Let's play right. that. Art. Tonight's episode of Ready to Unload with Cal and Sam Pete is sponsored by Blue Haven NYC in Greenwich Village, New York City's sports bar for grown-ups. Go to www.bluehavennyc.com for details. Absolutely. So this episode is brought to you by Blue Haven in New York, where we do our live remotes from. Uh, it's a fantastic sports bar. If you want to watch sports, if you want to get beer, if you want to have a burger, any of those, any and all of those things, Bri, you could do. I heard the Super Bowl there was uh, tremendous. I can't even imagine. I heard it was a tremendous party. And we're going to talk about the Super Bowl later. By the way, I forgot to tag that. 
<laughs> we might want to talk about the Super Bowl later. I've, I've got a good story about what happened to me while I was watching it. Okay, same with me. I have yeah. a good story about that, too. Much different than, than 20 years ago. <laughs> that's right. that's the Super Bowl. That was my whole point. It was a very surreal experience watching the Super Bowl this year for me while I'm making pasta nice for the little guy. Uh, okay, let's bring him in without any more fanfare. Uh, he writes uh, – he's the Met Beat reporter for WFAN.com. He has also covered the Mets for ESPN New York. Uh, dot com. Uh, he's been in the sports marketplace here in New York for years and years and years, and we are really excited to have him join us on Radio Unload. Uh, Rich, how are you? Good. How are you guys doing? I sound like you're having a really good time there. <laughs> we do. We do have a bit of a party with ourselves. You know, you, we both go into our offices. Cal goes into his basement. I go into my office. Uh, PJ, we don't know where PJ actually does the show from, but... um. And, uh, you know, we sit in BS Sports for a couple hours. Nice. Not a bad gig. Not a bad gig at all. Uh, I call it the the toy department of the world, sports. (laughs) And sometimes we shouldn't forget that. Exactly. Well, Rich, we're we're, uh, again, we're we're super excited to have you on for a couple of minutes. We want to jump right in. Uh, We don't know if your time is limited or not, but um, we want to talk about the Mets because we, uh, Brian and I are huge Mets fans, um, and uh, we really want to you know, just jump right in with that. So, um, interesting uh, right now for us. We are sort of Sandy Alderson uh, patient <laughs> people, um, mm-hmm. and, and we tend to be more optimistic. You've been covering this team. You've been a fan of this team for a long time. Um, one of the things I've been talking about is it bears a lot of similarities to me to when Frank Cashin uh, was named general manager of this mm-hmm. team and took the Mets out of some really dark times. Do you see similarities there, and how do you feel uh, Sandy Alderson's doing so far? Well, I do see similarities. I mean, the baseball landscape is different in the in the in the mid '80s, early to mid '80s, because free agency was out there, but there was collusion, so there wasn't a lot of player movement. But certainly, the way that Sandy Alderson has conducted his trades is very similar to what Frank Cashin did. Frank Cashin would always insist that in any trade he made that a pitcher, a prospect of some sort, would be in the trade. Um, he did it when he obtained Sid Fernandez. He did it when he obtained David Cohn. He did it when he obtained Ron Darling and Walt Terrell, and then turned around and traded Walt Terrell for Howard Johnson. So yep. it's very similar in that standpoint. The difference, I think, is that this is a different atmosphere where there's a lot more free agency movement, although the the, the level of free agency, free agents out there this off season has probably been below the average normal where it usually is. I do think that he's handling this the right way. I mean, listen, you could read between the lines with Sandy Olsen since the day he took over, and everything was always pointing to the future. 2014, 2014, and we're a year away from that, and I think he's, the way he's building this team is the right way. You know, it's funny because I talked to Dave Ray in the offseason a couple of times, and, and he said twice to me in phone calls that he really thought the Mets were building their team the way the Giants built their team. And he said it to me twice in two separate phone calls. And when I went up the second time, I said, you know what? He's, he, he's got a point. I mean, yeah. look at the Giants. They won the World Series twice in three years. And their lineup, aside from Buster Posey and, and Sandoval, were almost there was almost nobody well, in the starting lineup from the, the, the from two years ago that won yeah. the World Series. 
they wanted it uh, with two different starting outfield lineups. And Rich, maybe, maybe uh, one of my favorite players, uh, young David Wright, is a listener to this program because I said two and a half months ago here on these very airwaves that it was starting to become clear to me. It was around when they were, you know, looking to make the Dickey trade and stuff, but it was starting to become clear to me that Sandy Alderson was trying to build this team to be the Giants, to have the flavor, uh, the payroll flexibility that the Giants have. The moving parts in the outfield don't matter. If you have a strong core uh, in the infield, and getting Darno to me was like getting Buster Posey. Um, and building a strong rotation that uh, is built on young power arms is is the giant formula. Abs- I mean, it's amazing to me to hear you say that David Wright said that. I want to cry. That's fantastic. I well, said that like three and, months and, ago. And, and think about <laughs> this for a minute. Let's go back to 2000, mm-hmm. the last time I met you in a World Series. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that outfield was as bad as the outfield they're going to start on opening day, <laughs> assuming Michael Bourne's not here. Right. We'll get to that in a second. But um, but Benny Agbayani, Timo Perez, and, and you know, Daryl right. Hamilton or Jay Payton didn't exactly yeah. strike fear in the hearts of other teams. Had the Mets win? Well, they had a two-headed monster at the head of the rotation in Hampton and Leiter. They had an infield that all hit, with the exception of Ordonez. All of them could drive in close to 100 runs, whether it's Fonzie, Piazza, Olerud slash Veal or Ventura. And and they had a bullpen that that was, although Benitez got a lot of heat for blowing big games, he did compile save numbers, and that was a pretty deep bullpen with Franco and Dennis Cook and Turk Wendell. You know, that was a and that was the formula. And that was was with an outfield that I would have to say at best was average. And I think (laughs) I'm being kind (laughs) by saying they were average. Um, So I think that to me, the formula in baseball has always been this. Build your rotation. Get two or three bats. Ideally, you want to have four bats in the middle of the lineup that you can count on for 85 to 90 RBIs. You can have three if you have a catalyst type in the lineup. I can live with three and a catalyst. And then with the bullpen, it's, you know, hit and miss. And listen, even in the one trade Sandy made last year that was a bad trade, the Pagan trade, right. even in that trade he demanded a pitcher. Now, and it, and, it, and it, wasn't a, it wasn't a bad trade at the time. Yeah. I mean, he asked for the pitcher. The pitcher didn't work out. And listen, you move on. But I, I think it's important to note that he has brought, to me, a core back to this team. And the other thing that he's done with these, with the wheelers and the catcher he picked up and pitching prospects is it then lifts all the other Met prospects, the ones that are right below those guys, to trade chips. Right. Roma Flores now is a trade chip, okay? Henry Mejia is a trade chip. Juro's Familia is a trade chip because now you have depth in the minor league system. So now you can go out and get somebody. Now, I don't think he's ready to do that yet because he doesn't feel the Mets are one player away from becoming a championship team. But once Wheeler gets his feet on the ground, once they solve the catching situation, I think that he may have the compunction to make a deal like this, maybe as soon as this trading deadline in July, but certainly by next off season. And I think, you know, look, I know the Mets fans just they want they want to they want to play. I'll use the term meaningful games in September. But 
<laughs> I would much rather wait and play meaningful games in October next year. And, you know, Rich, and that's how well, I feel about it. Well, you know, Rich, that's what I wanted to talk to you about because I think the way Sandy Alderson's operating, and like you said, since he got here, the, the plan has been very clear that he was building towards the future. And the fans have kind of allowed him that time over the last couple of years to build towards the future. But I feel like this offseason, when the Mets are almost on the precipice of, of making that move, and Sandy Alderson even says they're, they're not that far away, I feel like a lot of fans are losing patience with him now. So do you think there's a fine line between what fans perceive as lacking a sense of urgency and, and what Sandy is doing is, is having patience to stick to this plan? Well, it's a complex question, but, but how I answer it is this. You can disagree with the plan, but I think you have to respect his steadfastness in executing the plan. Now, I don't think this was particularly a great free agent class out there, and I agree with him. I was not going to give up Zach Wheeler for Upton. No, absolutely I, I would not. not have, absolutely I would not have made that deal. Now, they made the Braves made the deal they, they, they felt they needed to make, but I'll say this about the Braves. In what the Braves have done this offseason, and, and I think their outfield is going to be terrific, but they're getting away from who the Braves are. Mm-hmm. The Braves are about pitching, mm-hmm. okay? And their ace is now up in age, okay? Yep. Now, they have other people in that rotation, guys that came, McMedlin, that came to the forefront, I mean, and pitched well. But to me, the Braves are about starting pitching and a strong bullpen and hitting that, that gives them enough. And I think that they're moving away from what I think has been successful for them over the past few decades. It's going to be interesting to watch the dynamic of this team without Chipper. It's going to be interesting to think about how much those innings that those guys in the bullpen have logged in the last two years oh, yeah. is going to have an effect on them. Probably not Kimbrell as much, but certainly Venters and O'Flaherty and some of the other guys that, that set up. And being that their starting pitching isn't as strong as it was in past years, they're going to need more and more out of those guys in the bullpen. So I think it's going to be very interesting with the Braves. But getting back to the Mets, and I just think Sandy understands the core of what he needs to do. I think when he took this job, as the Madoff thing began to cement and take form, I think he had to even scale back even more than he wanted to. And I think if you got Sandy in a corner with some truth serum, he'd admit that. Now that the, the Madoff thing seems to be behind the Mets, at least at least the, the big elephant in the room and the big number they would have had to pay, they're still going to have to pay something, but it's not anywhere near where it would have been if it had been a full-blown court case. Yeah. Um, I think that he's beginning to now come back to the pack, and it's coming at just the right time. And listen, I look at the National League East, it's a tough division. There's no doubt about it. There's pitching everywhere in this division, and it's a tough division. But listen, you know, you look, every year there's a team that no one expects. I mean, you can compare the Mets outfield to what the A's infield was. Sure. going into the season last year. And yep. I think it came down to the A's. The A's got some pitching. They got some outfielders. Reddick had a good year for them. They got some timely hitting, and they rode it into the playoffs. Now, poor Billy Bean still hasn't gotten to the sports <laughs> Final Four. Yeah. But I think he I, – I respect Billy Bean's ability to build a team with a minimal budget. Now, I think 
San Diego had to do that with a minimal budget because of some of the contracts that he was saddled with. Now, next year he's not going to have Santana's contract. Next nope. year he's probably going to be almost paid off with Jason Bay, although we'll have some money left over next year to pay him. I think that he'll be in a position where he will be able to add some players. The one miss, big misstep I think Sandy made was Jose Reyes. And really? I I wanted him to, to, to keep Jose Reyes, but if he, he, he rolled the dice with Jose Reyes. I think he really believed he wanted to sign him, okay? And he never believed anyone would give him over $100 million. And you know what? He, his strategy wasn't a bad one because it was one crazy owner that did it. Right. right. Well, we see there what happened no there. There was no other yeah. offer close to $100 million for Jose Reyes. So I think it was a gamble that, you know, if you know if the Marlins brain trust wasn't completely out of their mind for a four-month period, he probably would have been able to get him for $85 million, maybe $90 million. And I think that's what he was banking on. Now, if he knew what he knew in the middle of the season that the Marlins would be a team that would pay $100 million, I think he would have traded them. So and we got think, some prospects. So, Rich, you think at the time – he was he was pretty committed to to, to keeping Reyes because he thought he had a good chance to sign him because you hear a lot of that too. Why didn't the Mets just trade him when they had the chance to? Well, first everybody of, all, of course they, they forgetting that he was hurt. He was hurt. I, I know the, he was hurt, and I know the Red Sox and Mets had extensive conversations. Okay, to this day I don't know how how far along those conversations went, but right. they were more than just due diligence calls. Okay, I can, I can assure you that. But I do think when push came to shove, Sandy saw what Reyes was doing, and he thought that he could be part of the the problem, part of the solution, not the problem, but not at a hundred million dollars. And I think in Sandy's mind, he had seen enough of Ruben Tejada at second base to think that Tejada could have been a second baseman, and then he might have thought about moving Daniel Murphy. Okay. Right. And now, when you think about it, what, I, I like him at infield, but how much more would you like it? With yeah. James Sahara, Reyes, and Wright. <laughs> yeah, be good. No, absolutely. And you tr- and you spin Murphy off to the American League for a pitcher. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I think. I mean, I think, which I don't. Uh, it's it's such a uh, an interesting time. We've been we, Brian and I have been Met fans for a long time. We're not kids, uh, so uh, you know we've seen so many different eras uh, of Mets baseball and rebuilding. And, and of course, we, we love the 83, 84, 85, 86 teams because that's when we were coming of age and watching. Uh, and, of course, you don't know this, but Brian and I have known each other since we're eight years old and played on our first Little League team together. And so we've been watching the Mets together in some way, shape, or form, you know, for 30 years. So those we're always trying to draw back to – that 83-84 version when they made the trade for Hernandez in 83, of course. And then in 85, they bring in Carter. In 84, they had a good, surprising year. This team right now, to me, the way they're constructed, feels very 84-ish. Feels very much like that 84 team with Wheeler, uh, you know, uh, Harvey sort of playing the good role, Wheeler playing maybe the guy who's not quite ready yet but comes in and contributes and and real good arms at the front there. You know, they don't have strawberry, uh, but, you know, they 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 have Darno, who's, uh, you know, a highly touted prospect. It feels like they could play – they could be a much better team than people think they are. 
It could be, and I think of them more as an 83 team, actually, than an 84 team. But I understand where you're going with it. And, listen, there's no strawberry here, but, you know, the way Ike Davis hits homers, he's not exactly chopped liver. And he had a bad first half of the season. I think think he's capable of hitting 40 homers. I I really do. Absolutely. I saw something today. Stretch. Um, I saw something today that he had the second where Calvi's going to hate this. Calvi's going to hate this because he's not a big advanced metrics guy. But I saw. (laughs) I don't get it. (laughs) But I saw that he had the second worst Bob Bip in 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 baseball, and that's a significant statistic to me. Batting average on balls in play means that you're hitting it right at them. You know what's the old saying? Hit them where they ain't. And if you're hitting the ball, you know you could hit the ball in the screws nine out of ten times if you hit it right at somebody. You're not going to be successful. And he had the second worst Bob Ip in, in Major League Baseball last year. Wow. Do you know that what um, – there was a, a Met player, and you probably remember Greg Jeffries. Of course. Um, yeah. Do you know that he led the majors in seven consecutive years in a dubious stat? And what would that stat be? Oh, boy. I know he led the majors in swinging a wiffle ball bat underwater in his pool as, <laughs> as a training technique because I did it. The minute I've read about it. Uh, did, he, did he hit into the most double plays seven years in a row? No, you're kind of going in the right direction, though. It's, it's, it's a, he led the majors in line-outs line out. for seven straight years. <laughs> you know, that, includes, that indicates to me he was the guy that was hitting it on, you know, hitting it squarely, but he just was hitting yeah. it at the one. And Jeffrey's got a bad rap. Jeffrey's, for a couple of years, as a man, he was a doubles machine. I mean, oh, he, he was. Absolutely. He was a guy that, you know, hit a lot of doubles. And Daniel Murphy reminds me offensively a little of him. Yes. A little bit um, of of Jeffries. Right? I'm sorry, what did you say? I said it wasn't the problem largely with Jeffries in the clubhouse that when he came up in 88, he was like the highly touted rookie and he sort of like didn't take to the hazing well and and that sort of – I mean, that was a tough team to come up on in 88. You had Hernandez and Carter and Strawberry. And, you know, th- th- those were not easy guys to come up with. Well, I think those guys didn't mind him. I think the guys that he had problems with were guys like Bachman. Right. Sure. Now, remember, right. he took his job. time away from those guys. <laughs> and even Hojo to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. As quiet as Hojo was, I mean, Hojo knew that, you know, he was going to take playing time away from him. And, you know, what people don't remember about Jeffries, and you guys probably do, is when he came up in 88, he was so good in that late season in August and September that the Mets decided that they were going to, you know, play him in the playoffs. So yeah. they had to kind of jimmy rig their team a little bit. And that, that, that was a poor year for Hojo, 88. He had a decent amount of homers, but he, his batting average was under 230, and he was striking out a lot. And you know, Jeffries had, had a good playoff. He had a lot of hits in that series against yes, the Dodgers. Yes, he did. And, it was, and for Hojo, it was an even year. So what could you expect? It yes, was right. <laughs> Very Brett Saberhagen-like his That's career right. was. That's right. Cal was at um, – uh, Cal got to go to the um, the season ticket, um, you know, Q&A with Sandy Alderson and, and mm-hmm. uh, E. Podesta and stuff. And, uh, Cal, you were talking – we talked about it a little bit on the show last week, but – you just you got a you're around these guys rich a little bit right Cal you got like a real good sense about how they handle themselves yeah you know they Sandy Alton was very was very candid in in speaking to the season ticket holders and and he made it very clear 
that the reason why he hasn't spent any money this offseason was because of him. He decided that there was no player out there, Rich, like you said, it's a weak free agent crop. There was nobody out there that was worth the money. So why throw money at somebody just for the sake of throwing money at them? He also made it very clear that they do have money to spend in the right place. And I came away, I came away from the presentation of, of the executives. First of all, I was extremely impressed with all of them, Ricciardi and, and Di Podesta and, and Rico. They are all extremely well-spoken and very positive and very intelligent. And I came away feeling so much better about this team this year than I, than I felt going into it. So I guess that's kind of where our positivity is coming from right now. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, these are smart guys. These are guys that care. These are guys that eat, drink, and sleep baseball, okay? And, and the sabermetric thing has gone overblown. You know, that's, the New York media never let the facts get in the way of a good story, you know? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, and I my colleagues, I love them. I love going out and having drinks with them after games and stuff, but I, I want to strangle them sometimes because right. Sandy came in and really sabermetrics is not about this is the way I want it done. This is the way I'm going to build a team. It's like any other. You have a tool shed. You have a bunch of tools in the tool shed. Okay? Yeah. Now, you've got to put a, a nail on the wall. You use a hammer. You don't use a rake. Right. But the rake is a useful tool to do other things. And that's kind of what Saber Metrics is. Yeah. It, it kind of is, for me anyway, it's a tool to look at some numbers that maybe you would ordinarily see and then match it up with other players. And it's a tool. Yeah, but it exactly. should never it should never replace your eyes as a tool. Right. And I, I've had long discussions with Paul B. Podesta and JP Ricciardi, whom I agree with you, I respect them immensely. Right. Um by the way, JP is a huge hockey fan, so Is he really? Oh, I mean it's hard for me to in March when we're down in spring training, it's hard for me to have a baseball conversation with me because all we want to talk about is the NHL. But oh, that's nice. we have a good time with that. Is he a Ranger fan? He's from the Boston area, so he's a oh, Ranger okay. fan. Oh, okay. We so, can, I grew up we, a Ranger fan, so I give him a lot of uh, I give him a lot of crap. But we won't I hold think, that against you. Where I I think that you know the bottom line is these guys have a plan. Yeah. And I liked Omar Minaya a lot personally. There's not a better person I've known in 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 all the years I covered sports. There's not a finer person than Omar Minaya. Okay. Sure. And we'll get to the whole Adam Rubin thing in a second, but. I didn't agree with everything Omar did, but I always thought his heart was in the right place. I thought in 2006 when they didn't win, he knew that they had to go out and get a bat. So he got a Moises Alou. wasn't the best bat out there, but he got Moises Alou. And looking back, if he had gotten Alou instead of Sean Green, they might have won the World Series. Yeah, you they know? Did. And he yeah. almost got Moises Alou that year. Yeah. The day before, the trade was made and the Giants backed out of it. So he went and got Sean Green. That's another one people don't know. But sure. I think wow. that, you know, the approach with, with Omar was in a different world. It was a pre-Madoff world. He had money to spend, and if he had money to spend, he was going to spend it. And he built teams that won almost 90 games. They won well over 90 in 2006 and won close to 90 in 2007 and 2008. Yep. To me, that's all you can ask a general manager to do. Yeah. You know, they come thing- down on winning some games in September, and they didn't get it done in 07 and 08, and you know, we can pontificate as to what those reasons were. I think Willie Randolph got far too much grief for it. Um, and I think Jerry Mandel got far too little blame for it. So, But I, I also think that um, 
there's an approach here, and the approach is different now. It's different than it was with Manai. It's different because the finances were different when Sandy took over. It's different because the sport has changed a little bit. Now teams hang on to their prospects. They don't trade them, okay? Everyone was trading their prospects, and it wasn't just the Mets and the Yankees. Everyone was trading their prospects. The Dodgers were trading their prospects. The Cardinals even were trading their prospects. Everyone was yep. doing that. Now teams are holding on to their prospects more. And they're so also just, signing different they're also, Yeah, and they're also signing their young players to longer-term contracts and buying out those arbitration years and some of their free agency. And I think the revenue-sharing model, which I was very skeptical about, that would ever bring balance to baseball, I was wrong. I, I, think, that, I think that revenue-sharing has helped. Now, there are teams that have abused it. Okay, there's no question. But there are teams that have benefited from it, too. And that would not have been, and it's and it's kind of brought the balance of power. I mean, the prime example everyone looks at is you know Tampa, but I look at a team like the Brewers, and I say, right. man, I remember the Brewers being bad forever. Okay, <laughs> when the Mets went into Milwaukee for a four-game series, I was like, okay, we're going into Milwaukee, we're touching down in the Brewer Brewer Brewerland here in Milwaukee, and we got a four-game series. I'll be shocked if the Mets don't leave with three wins. Yeah, and most yeah. times it happens. Yep, but I think they got it that they can even lose players like Prince Fielder, and they can be competitive. And they can still compete, Because they keep yep. pitching and let the lineup just circle out. Let it yep. circle out to where, you know, Ryan Braun's your guy. Okay, that's the guy you pay. And everyone else is kind of moving parts. It's like, yep. a, it's like a lazy Susan. Really, that's what it is. And I think that that is what – and the news media doesn't understand this. Because we live in a town where the Yankees are across the river. Yep. And if the Yankees see something, they buy it. And yes. <laughs> even the Yankees have stopped doing that a little bit. Oh, they're being, they're being run on austerity. I mean, for, by Yankee by Yankee standards, this offseason was like uh, in the poorhouse. Never seen anything like it in the and last 15 years. I really years. think it has more to do with the fact that George is gone. Yep. And George yeah. is a lunatic, even to the yeah. end. Okay. Yep. But his son's a businessman. How's a businessman? Now, Hank's like his father, a lunatic. If if Hank was running the team, the Yankees would have signed Josh Hamilton. Oh, but Hal wasn't going to have that, okay? And Hal wants to get under that revenue number. And he knows he's got to sign Cano in the offseason. And listen, the old Yankees, they would have resigned Swisher. They would have resigned Russell Martin. Now, are those guys real difference makers? No, I don't think they are. But now with A-Rod out for at least half the year and more if he gets suspended, um, I think that, you know, now the Yankees don't have the power that they had once had. And they they still go out and sign players. They got signed a Eucalyptus. They signed some other people. They signed a Hafner. Yep. But the Yankees didn't, didn't really sign anyone big this offseason. And it's the first time I can remember that in a long time. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and it is a, a definitely a different baseball revenue sharing and and locking up long term or locking up players long term. Even the Mets locking up David Wright. I mean that yeah. that if there was ever a symbolic gesture of the Mets sort of being reopened for business, uh, it, you know, it was definitely that. Now look, Rich, we'll be honest with you. You know, Brian and I are no fans of the Wilpons, uh, mm-hmm. but but we've long said. Um, you know, the Wilpons problem has never been that they don't spend money. But spending money doesn't make you a good owner. You know, there are there are ways to run an organization and things that you do when you run an organization that the Mets seem to fumble over 
uh, time and time again, that, that is sort of frustrating. Now, that's taking the Madoff stuff, which is obviously huge, out of the equation a bit. I mean, the finances obviously uh, have been a disaster. But I'm just talking about running the team, things like being tone deaf to uh, uh, having the walls be blue. You know, something as simple as that uh, at City Field, for example. Something as simple as that to me seems like they always are like a step behind when they're running the organization. And admittedly, they have a crabby fan base right now. Uh, I mean, right. Brian and I shake our heads a lot. We We have a saying on this show. We're never embarrassed to be a fan of the team we're a fan of. Because you know what? We have a choice. Nobody's putting a gun to our heads and making us be Jet fans or Met fans. You know, we're, we're fans of those teams because we love them. I'm, I'm not embarrassed to be a Jet fan because they play badly or they do something stupid off the field. Uh, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed by other Jet fans <laughs> um, and to say that I'm one of them. But I'm never embarrassed by the team. I have a choice. You know, there's, right. another, te- there's another team right in town. And I think I think the media plays into that. I mean, when you look at what the Jets have gone through, and I, yeah, I give half of the blame to them and half to the media. I mean, listen, Tim Tebow would not have been a story unless the media made him a story. Yeah, Tim Tebow isn't a guy that comes in every day and says, "You look at me, take pictures of me." He's not, you know, he's not that kind of person. And listen, the bottom line with the Jets is. The media, the media goes 180 when it wants to go. One thing I found in being around the media all my life is they will have the last word, okay? Even <laughs> if they're wrong, they will have the last word, okay? Yep. And, and you know, I look at Rex Ryan, and I, I covered a little bit of the Jets. I don't know them all that well. I know Rex a little bit, but certainly okay. not as well as I know Terry Collins or Willie Randolph. So, Rex, to me, is a guy I would want to coach my football team. And I'll tell you why. He's a defensive genius. And and people say to me, okay, what do you mean? What do I mean? Okay? This guy went into Indianapolis in a playoff game and beat Peyton Manning and then went up to New England and beat Tom Brady with two diametrically opposite defensive game plans in those weeks. He played bend but don't break with Manning, and he played I'm going to be all over Brady. Those are two totally different game plans. Yeah. Okay. And you know you look at you look at you know what the Ravens did this year. You know the Ravens the Ravens went in and they beat Peyton Manning and Tom Brady. They did the same thing the Jets did, and they got a lot of credit for it. When they won the Super Bowl, they deserve all the accolades. Yeah. But I love when people say, "Well, I actually heard this on talk radio this week this weekend." <laughs> oh boy. Jeez. The 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 um the Ravens beat beat the Patriots and the Broncos. They beat Manning and Brady back to back. Why can't the Jets have a coaching staff like that? <laughs> I actually heard someone say that. You mean like, myself, the, like the one they have? Did we just did we just blot out? Listen, this, football's hard. This is what people have to realize. Yeah, it is. Being a head coach, it, this is such a complex game that you can only really master one side of the ball. So what ends up happening is you have to have a coordinator on the side of the ball you don't know that's really on his game. Yeah. And and, and I'll I'll say it I'll say it very simply. Across town, Tom Conklin's an offensive guy. Yep. That's what he does. So when Tom Conklin has done well, it's when his defensive coordinator has done great. Okay? Yeah. 
And when his defensive coordinator has done great, Tom Coughlin's just been another coach. And yeah. I'm not criticizing Tom Coughlin because you, this goes back to uh, – you can go back to Bill Waltz and George Seifert. You can go back to Parcells and Belichick. There always has to be a check mark on the other side of the ball that you're not good at, okay? Mm-hmm. So when people say to me, Rex Ryan is not good at offense, uh, my reaction is yes, so. Right. Okay. Andy Reid's an offensive guy. When he had a great defensive coordinator, they were going to the playoffs every year. When he didn't have a great defensive coordinator, they're not in the playoffs. It's no big surprise to me. Right. And this is the thing I think that people don't understand. The other thing is, this is hard sport. You can't be a boob and go to two straight championship games. Okay? <laughs> not possible in the sport. And, you know, I'll say this about Tannenbaum, too. Tannenbaum made me share mistakes. There's no doubt. Yes. But Tannenbaum was the general manager here that drafted Darrell Rivas. He was the general manager that drafted Shaw Ferguson. He was the general manager that made some bad deals as well and made some bad contracts. But he's also the general manager who's watched the Jets are on when they went to two straight title games. And I'll mm-hmm. tell you this. I'll say right now about Mike Tannenbaum. Everyone throwing dirt on him. Mike Tannenbaum will get another job in the NFL. Okay? Because... The people that run the NFL teams aren't as stupid as the media. They're going to look past. They're going to look past it and say, "Hmm, this guy had two really good seasons. They went to the Final Four. Oh my God! Look at the quarterbacks they beat. Not only Brady and Manning, they beat Philip Rivers when he was on top of his game. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's well, pretty gosh darn good. The so other thing I is think... that. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say. This didn't happen 30 years ago with Tannenbaum. This was only three years ago. <laughs> and sometimes it feels like it was forever, but it really was only three years ago. He still he still knows the players in the league right now. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, and, and I, I think, think he's, you know, listen, he's not a general manager to the standpoint that he's going to be able to go to, to the senior bowl and pick the 10 guys out that are the best players. That's not his skill. His skill is in contracts. And he's got a great relationship with player agents. That's a very important part of being a football general manager. Now, you're not going to get a perfect general manager. Like the guy they brought in there, he's a lot like Tannenbaum. Very similar to Tannenbaum's skill set. He might know a little bit more about personnel than him, but he's kind of a business guy. Smart guy, big time college, nice degree. He's great with agents. I've talked to three football agents today, and they say, this guy is as good as it gets in dealing with the agents. So, and that's a big part of the job. Yeah, we heard that. I, I heard that early on, too, about Itzik, too, that, that he was really well-respected with the agents, which is which is huge. Cal, what was uh No, I was just, Rich, do you, do you think the same philosophy applies to the front office? Like you were talking about if you are an offensive head coach, you need a great defensive coordinator. If you are great like Tannenbaum is with the salary cap and, and with the business side of it, He's he's most successful if he's paired with like a top notch personnel guy, right? I think that they probably have to bring in someone who, even a guy that recruited for college as 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 an assistant coach, somebody that yes can can go to the you know I call it you go to the park and you're the captain and you can pick out the best player who's seen him warm up. Mm-hmm. We know people like that. We know people that can go to the park and pick up basketball and. I'll just, you know, see the guy take a couple shots, and I'll say, I don't know anyone here, but I'm picking him first. Okay? Right. I think you need a guy in the front office like that. 
But I also think if you have a guy like that that doesn't really have the balance sheet skill set and the personality to deal with agents, I think he'll be just as unsuccessful as the reverse guy. So I do think they do have to bring in a guy for some balance, and I think they will. I, I, yeah. I think they eventually will. But, I, I mean, listen, the Jets were 6-10 and 10 last year. That was disappointing. But let's call it what it is. You lose Darrell Rivers and Antonio Holmes. Is it, is it that outlandish? To, and I hear these people say, well, you can't win with Antonio Holmes. And that's another one I have to laugh at when I say to them, someone already did win with him. <laughs> what, what, what are you talking about? And I'm telling you right now, if Antonio Holmes isn't on the field for that Super Bowl, there's, that, there's one less Lombardi trophy in the Steeler trophy case. Oh, of okay? course. No, absolutely. And so, same thing with Pascal Burris. He's like, can't win my face cancer. So that cancer actually helped the Giants win a Super Bowl. And, yeah, you know, right. <laughs> and when he got like, hurt, they couldn't, make, they couldn't do anything after he got hurt. Here's my problem. Not problem, but here's here's where I'm at with Rex, I feel like, personally. I, uh, Brian and I have talked about the Jets a, a, a ton here, and it's one of our favorite topics on a weekly basis. And we've talked a ton about how the media covers the Jets and the negative narrative that is uh, uh, perpetuated by the New York media because it sells papers and it generates page hits. And, we, and, and I definitely want to talk to you, uh, Brian, I want to talk to you a little bit about the New York media and where it's going. But here's where I am with Rex, and I wanted to uh, get your take on what you just said. So I understand that he – I have no problem with the fact that he is a defensive genius. I didn't want to see him fired because I believe that – who are you going to replace him with that's a better coach than him? I don't think you – I don't think that person was out there. And I think he is a defensive genius. And I, I had said since December that they need to find an offensive coordinator who's the offensive version of Rex. They need to find somebody who's innovative, organized and has a passion about offense that Rex has about defense. They need to find the Rex of offense for the coordinator. But I do feel like Rex, Ryan, needs to work on or continue to grow as a complete coach. And it's one thing to be reliant on your offensive coordinator if you don't know anything about offense. It's another thing to me to sort of ignore it. And that's what the hiring of Tony Sperano was. Like that's why it's difficult for me to feel like Rex now I now I think Morningwig was a great hire. I didn't like it at first, but the more I read about it and the more I read about the offense that he's going to run and how Rex Rex wants to change an attack. He wants to become an attacking offense to match the defense. He went and got Marty Morningwig. Marty Morningwig will do that. So I feel like that in and of itself is growth. But don't you think, Rich, that he has to become – and he's a work in progress, but he has to become more of a complete coach. He can't well, be completely I, I agree. I, I, and he has, to, he has to do that. But I also don't want him to be something he's not, okay? And, and this is the thing that the media really doesn't – the media just – I mean, they just – you know, I, I don't know if you guys ever watched wrestling. I watched it when I was a kid. Don't watch it anymore, but – Sure. They had this guy, Roddy Piper, and oh, Roddy yeah. Piper would have an interview session, and he would say, just when you think you have the answers, I change the I questions. I change the questions, that's right. It's one of my and favorite quotes, one of my favorite quotes just, of all just time. Just be the reporters have done. I mean, that's, <laughs> they, they, change, they change the question, okay? They change the question. Now, I think when Rex came here, all the media was like, oh, yeah, 
this is an infusion. This is what this what the Jets need. You know, they need someone that's going to put his butt out there and, and you know, just put his butt on the line. Change the culture. Really Change the culture. And they, and, they, and they basically love them. Mm-hmm. Now, they don't love them, okay? It's the same Rex Ryan. In fact, it's not even the same Rex Ryan. This is the thing, the subtle thing that I noticed about Rex Ryan this year. He started becoming kinder and gentler with the media. Yep. He started crediting the other team for winning. Okay? Yeah, more, no more, more guarantees. Even more, and even more because the media demanded him, well, what is he doing, Gansy? Don't let this guy change what he, what he is. Okay? He wants to say that I'm going to go out and kick Bill Belichick's butt. Well, I'll tell you, the guy hasn't been too bad against the Patriots. I mean, there aren't too many teams that have gone into Foxborough for a playoff game and won in Foxborough. Even the Giants won in a neutral site. They okay? were 14-2. and two, He's by going the way. into Foxborough for a playoff, and it's not the only time he's beaten the Patriots. He's beaten nope. them a couple of times you know, at oh, yeah. MetLife Stadium as well. Jets have been pretty even with the Patriots. So Until this I like year. the fact that he was brash. But this year I just got the feeling that it was like people didn't want him to, you know, people didn't want him to be who he can be. And it all started with that Jet Giant game two years oh, ago. Oh, yeah. And it started with his book, too, Rich. It started with him calling out the Giants in that book. I mean, that's... This is my point about that game, though. And then losing that game. Do you want to know what Eli Manning's stats were in that game? Oh, they were, all, they were awful. They awful. were 9 for 27. I know. And they really what beat him was a that game by two touchdowns. Should have won that game by two touchdowns. They threw the ball 67 times. <laughs> and, and, you know, as bad as, as, bad as Schoenheimer was, Brown was even worse. Oh, he, yeah. he, set, he set Jet offensive football back to the Joe Wall. I mean, we had the Hempstead playbook out. That was, I mean... That was like I remember going to watch the Jets in the in you know in the mid '80s when Joe Walton, who was you know a, a really nice man, apparently, but not not the best uh, coach, you know, dealing with career. And I was you know I was a kid then, so I would watch the games and stuff. But you know, Joe, I mean, we used to they used to scream like you know put the Hempstead playbook away, Joe. You know, this is I mean he set offensive football back. I mean, just awful. But, you know, a lot of that, too, Rich, is how, and Brian and I have talked about this a ton as well because we're sort of Sanchez apologists, and that's, you know, give give me one season where Mark Sanchez has Rowdy White, Roddy White, see, you got Rowdy, Roddy Piper in my head, Roddy White, <laughs> Julio Jones, Tony Gonzalez, Michael Turner, uh, you know, g- g- let me see Mark Sanchez have a season where he has even close to that level of talent. Uh, they They have done a Poor job of building around this guy. I mean, to me, and when he had the talent, when he had Braylon Edwards and Holmes, they and went a healthy Dusty Teller, he won. They went eleven and five and won two playoff games on the road again. And he was the, in that Pittsburgh game. If you go back and watch that AFC Championship game, he's the best player on the field. He was. He brought them back from twenty-four nothing, and had them in position to win that game. I mean, absolutely. Oh, it kills me what they've done. I please, I could cry what they've done to Mark Sanchez. I could cry. And I know a lot of people want him out. They said you can't. To me, this is when I draft a quarterback. This is my philosophy. Everyone has a different one. I'm drafting a guy, especially a guy that high in the first round, especially a guy I'm trading up to get. I gotta give him five years. I can't yeah. give him less than five years. 
Okay. Now the first two years were good. I don't know if they were great, but they were good. The third year was average to poor, and last year was awful. But if you look, if you look at it even closer than that, you realize in, in last year, not last year, but the year before. I mean, you can't lose a Nick Mangold when you're going into playing the Ravens, mm-hmm. the Patriots, and I forget the other team they were playing. I, that might have been the Raiders. I, I, it, might, that, it was three straight road games that they lost. They went 0-3. And, and the guy had no time to throw the ball. And yeah, it was it was an awful time to lose Nick Mangold. It was because they had turned the offense over to Sanchez, and they wanted yeah. to throw the ball more, yeah. and they were going away from ground and pound. And then you lose one of the best centers in the game. And but now, even with and, all that, he got them to 8-5. Oh, yeah. Okay. They were eight and five the Jets. Now they lost their last three games and they made, they finished eight and eight. But he lost three games in a row early in the year, and the yep. Jets still got to eight and five. Yep. And so he got them to the point now. Listen, what happened in the last three games of the season? It happens, okay. But I think once that game in Miami occurred, everything changed for the Jets. I totally now they agree. had to, you know, and I'm not big on players after they leave a team yapping. I, 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 <laughs> the LT thing just bothered me to no end. Yeah. And I don't mind Number that Antonio Holmes was mad. I, I, people go like this, well, Santonio Holmes is selfish. No, he's not selfish. Santonio Holmes knew that he was one of the best players on the field, okay? And if he wasn't getting the ball, they weren't going to win. I want my players being a little selfish. To, would you rather say, I'm not getting the ball, let me just shut up and go in the huddle. Okay, I don't know why people think that's so bad. That's hard it's for not. me with Holmes. It's hard for me with Holmes. I know what you're saying, and Brian and I. I think Brian feels you're with me, Brian, right? I'm I'm more than with you. I think I I agree with you, Rich. I want my players to feel that way. I don't necessarily want to hear it though. I think that's the only problem with Holmes, Rich. I look. I I think Santonio San Holmes is a usable player without a doubt, and he's a tremendous talent. I think, though, that that rift becoming public, just becoming public. Like, I want him to want the ball. Absolutely. But it getting out of the locker room and spilling out onto the field, I think was the turning point for how this team is covered. I really do. How it's it covered. probably was, but I don't think he was indicting Sanchez as much as he was indicting Schottenheimer. Schottenheimer. That's probably mm-hmm. true. That's probably true. And, and, and this is where people miss it. Sanchez and Holmes are pretty, I would say they're tight, tight friends, but they spend time in the offseason together. Yeah, okay? no. Oh, no. So people are like, people say to me, oh, they can't stand each other. Let me tell you something. You can't stand someone. You're not going to spend time in the offseason. Think about people you work with and you couldn't stand. Would you say, oh, yeah, let's spend the weekend together. Let's go, let's, uh, let's get, go to Vegas. I can't stand you, but I'd like to spend some time with you. <laughs> so, you know, that's where the media loses me. Right. And the other thing, I know we're going to talk a little bit about the media, and I'll just I'll just tip it off by saying this. I've covered sports in this town since 1982. I will say in those, you know, what have we got, 40 years of time, I would say that um, I have found more egos in the press box than in any clubhouse. <laughs> I believe that. Okay. And it, it's funny because they think they're bigger than the game. And this is where they lose. I don't know when beat reporters became sophomore girls in high school. I don't know when that transformation <laughs> occurred, but it has. 
Okay. Twitter. I got to yeah, I got to be first to do this. I got Twitter. And then That's and then the topper was with the Manaya Rubin thing was just you know, I've been in sports my whole life and I've never seen anything like it. And at that point I knew Omar Manaya was a dead man. Right. Okay. Because I said the media's not going to let this go now. One of their own was attacked when quite frankly the week before I had heard Adam say exactly what Omar said. He said. So yep. I know Omar was telling the truth. Yep. Now, Omar should have never, ever done it in that venue. No. <laughs> we were in Washington the week before, and Adam had written some scathing articles about not only Bernard's art, but the organization. And we were waiting for a cab outside of uh, Nationals Park. And right. um, I said to him, boy, it's been quite a week for you, huh? He goes, Rich, you don't know the half of it. He said... I know I know more about baseball than those guys. Yeah. And I almost dropped to my knees because <laughs> I think I know a lot about baseball, but I don't know what I know in baseball. You could put on a needle point compared to what all my and I knows. Right. Okay. Yeah. Or any general manager in a profession in which there's only 30 of them in the sport. Okay. Right. I know that I don't know more than them. That doesn't mean I can't disagree with their approach. That doesn't mean I can't be critical about their approach. But I have to kind of respect their path to take them to where their job is. Well, that's a key word. That's a key word you just used. I think. And he, and he didn't, you know, listen. I think respect listen, is it, out it, the it, window. He did wonders for his career. People now know who Adam Rubin is. Yes. I mean, they didn't know who he was before. Yep. Now, the media knew who he was before, but yeah, I give him credit. A, he I was give just credit. a beat guy he, at that he point. He took that situation and he wrote it, and all power to him. And he's a good reporter. He's a good reporter that works very hard, but we all know the truth. Yeah, and I think I think you know we one of the things we do on this show, Rich, honestly, and we have done is um, talk about the media. We talk about the way the teams. We don't only talk about the teams we love. We talk about the way they're covered because that's to us on a daily basis who are consume sports like junkies. It's a big part of it. You know, it's a big part of the deal, and we've been doing it for a hundred years. I mean, Brian and I both listened to WFAN the first day it was on the air. Mm-hmm. We listened to Steve Summers on the overnights when we were fifteen years old. You know, like we—I used to call into Steve Summers when I was fifteen. Um, so we consume this media, and your presence, your presence on Twitter, um, I think. And Brian, you back me up on this, or, or you not back me up? You're with me on this. I think Twitter changed the game. I, I think it it, I think Twitter's totally changed the game in that it's for, not about for good, being for right. good and for bad both. Yeah. Right. You know, you said it, Rich. You said it before. The reporters have the last word, and they know that. And they also know that they are opinion shapers, and fans are going to listen to what reporters have to say. And if the reporter wants to dictate a narrative, they can do it however they want because the fans are going to listen to them. And I think that what we're seeing and what we've talked about also is that with, with the emergence of bloggers into the, into the arena, you're getting fans now providing other fans with, with a fan's perspective rather than a reporter's perspective. And it's, I think it's changing a little bit now where the fans that follow these reporters are not as quick to just you know, buy into what they're saying as gospel anymore. I think it's very true, and I say it on Twitter all the time. Make your own opinions. 
Yeah. Don't worry about it. I have to be mine, but make your own opinions. And and you're all smart people. You, you like you said, you watch sports all your life. The problem I have is when a reporter tries to become the story. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> the bottom yeah. line on ESPN, I'll tell you all you need to know. We don't get the story. We get as reported by blah blah blah. Yeah. This is what the media doesn't understand. I know that it means a lot to our editors who break the story. But the fan doesn't doesn't care. The nope. fan it, just wants the right. story. Get it right, not first. I don't care about first. Just get it right. I'll give you a great example. The night David Wright signed his contract, Eddie C. and I were working on that story for a long time together. Right. To be honest with you, Eddie C. did 95% of the light work on it. I did 95%. (laughs) Okay. That night we had a benefit we were at for Shannon Dalton, who works in the Met PR office and who has stage 4 breast cancer. and. A lot of the media was there, and Sandy was there and everything. And I could have gone up to Sandy and said, I'm hearing David Wright's going to sign tonight, because I had heard it earlier in the day. And Eddie and I said, Eddie, you go on. And he goes, let's both go on. And I said, Eddie, you did most of the legwork. You get your story. Okay? But my point was that everyone was trying to get close to Sandy Alderson to, um, to get a read on what was happening with David Wright. Right. And I'm like saying to myself, this is not appropriate. This is not appropriate. Not in an event like this. Not where all the focus should be on helping someone who's helped us so much over the years. Right. And who's now in a fight for her life. Right. Okay? It was like it was like the Christmas party with Dickie. Like that's not the time to ask yeah. Ari, Dickie about his contract. It's not. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I don't. It's the. I'll tell you the truth. When I want to ask a player a very sensitive question. And I have to ask them sometimes. I don't ever do it in the scrum. Because the the reporter that does it in the scrum has made it all about him. Mm -hmm. He wants to be the one, or she, wants to be the one that, I asked that question. I didn't back down from this guy. I didn't back down from that guy. Meanwhile, if you really wanted to get to know a player and have a chance to get something you can use, then use it. And, and listen, there are reporters that cover the Jets that took off the record comments and put them on the record. Yeah. I think that is the most egregious yeah. abuse of being a journalist I've ever heard. Yeah. Oh. I would I, I would tell him that, but he blocked me a long time ago. So He did, huh? <laughs> well, well, this is the thing. I, I hear off the record stuff all the time. Yeah. Well, that's, okay. that was that was a question I was going to ask you, Rich. Honestly, you you've been covering the Mets for a long time. You've been in the media. You know, we we this particular reporter for the Daily News with the Jets this year. Like I I don't remember uh, a season like this. I don't remember following. I've been following these teams all my life. I don't remember. And and look, the Jets. You know this, Rich. The Jets have always had this problem with the media since the day that Joe Namath sat by a pool and guaranteed they would win. The Jets have always had this sort of contentious relationship with the media. Without Richard a doubt. Steve Serby. I mean, Richard there's Tyler so many Serby. instances. I mean, it, exactly. They have always had this mentality, and and it, and I think it goes back to Namath. I think it goes back to the fact that the Giants wanted to draft Namath, 
and they couldn't, and the Jets uh, were able to get him because the, the Giants had to deal with the Cardinals, and the Cardinals were going to draft him and trade him to the Giants. And you know, for how many years could uh, could the Maras not even say the word the name Namath? They wouldn't even say his name. In like, fact, I, the Maras wanted another. This is how you know. This is another one. Don't let the facts change. I don't want to. I don't want to put dirt on a guy that's dead. But Wellington Maras is this altruistic old man that helped everyone and was this, you know, grandfather to the world. Okay, yes. and that's not accurate. Okay, Wellington Mara, when 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 Namath was becoming available in the draft, he was politicking other teams in the NFL to get him and sign him. Yep. He would rather have him in his own league beating him than have him play for the Jets. Yep, and have him play for the AFL. That's absolutely right. And and, and when he gets, you know, he I mean, gets he written as the, the yep. When he gets written as the uh, the, the father of uh, the modern NFL and stuff like that, and a guy like Sonny Werblin gets completely forgotten. Yeah. When meanwhile, Sonny Werblin, whose TV or whose background was in TV, and saw the value of the uh, of football as a TV product, and saw the value of Namath as a superstar, uh, and that gets you know obviously Kriegel has the great biography about Namath, which is where I I understand a lot of this, but. Also, just from talking to my uncles, you know, who were around at the time and were Jet fans, and they're the reason I'm a Jet fan. Um, you know, he saw the superstar potential of Joe Namath and how you could sell that on TV. Absolutely. And especially, and and I especially think that, in New York. You know, when you look at how the media, they'll pick a guy and they'll like him or they won't. They'll, the media's favorite thing is sprucing a guy up and making him famous and then, and then tearing him down. They're kingmakers. That's what yep. they love doing the yep. most. Yep. And, and I, you know, I'm around them a lot, and some of them are pretty decent people. But there's a – I'll give you an example. The Ike Davis thing that came out last year. Where did that even come from? Where, yeah, that was – Who, who <laughs> even said that? Okay. All I hear was an unnamed source. Well, <laughs> you know what? An unnamed source can be a fictional source, too. I got it. Sure. I, I read. A, I'm writing a book. Reading, reading a book called Huck Finn. There's an unnamed source. Right. Huck Finn said I gave strengths. Okay. <laughs> Huck Finn doesn't need this. Okay. Right. Not exactly. in baseball terms, anyway. And and I say to myself, if you're around I gave, you know how silly that is. Okay. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Because I'm around these guys. I'm all spring training. All I Davis wants to do is play video games. Okay. <laughs> That's all he wants to do. He wants to go home and eat something, have video games, and have David Wright over and. Daniel Murphy was close friends on the team, and Bobby Parnell. Those guys are his close friends on the team. Those are the guys he hangs out with, okay? Yeah. I know because I went out to eat with Ike Davis, and all he wanted to do was go in the game room. Okay? <laughs> I couldn't even – it was like a little kid. I couldn't get him to finish his dinner, okay? Right. So this is the thing that made – and then the Mets want to trade him because they're afraid he's carousing. And I just – the whole thing – and Ike Davis and I talked about this. Yeah. And – and Ike Davis said to me, you know, Rich, the thing I like about you is you look at me in the eye and I know you're telling me the truth. Okay? Right. And I'm never going to – that doesn't mean I'm not going to be critical of Ike Davis if he strikes out four times in the September game and costs the Mets a playoff spot. Right. Okay? That doesn't mean I'm not going to, you know, be critical on him, you know, but, but it doesn't have anything to do with his personage. And I think it gets personal. Yep. It got personal with Mike Piazza and the whole thing, though. It's personal. Oh, boy. Oh. Yeah. It has nothing to do with anything other than the fact that Mike Piazza was the type of guy that he, he spent time with you and talked to you, but, you know, if he just talked for an hour, he wasn't going to talk for an hour and five minutes. Right. I, got to know Mike, I got to know Mike pretty well, when he was, and Mike and I had a pretty good relationship. 
me right. when he was on the team. And I heard from every person in the world that covered him in L.A., oh, when Piazza comes, or you're not going to be able to deal with him, you're not going to be able to deal with this. And the way he was treated when Rossi Clemens hit him in the head is the most abominable treatment I've ever seen an athlete get, where a guy gets hit in the head and he's viewed as the villain. Right. I've right. never seen it. I've yeah. never seen it ever, ever happen in sports. The guy got hit in the head with a ball because that's that you couldn't get him out, basically. Yep. Okay? A guy that stands so far away from the plate, Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, he did. I mean, he hit him because he hit him because he owned Roger Clemens. I mean, and then it's say, I lied to him. And then Roger Clemens come out and said, "Well, I tried to uh, go over and see how he was doing and apologize." Yeah, well, he was on a stretcher. Okay, <laughs> he tried to come over and you know, he begged, I was there. I was there in Yankee Stadium. He practically tried to knock over Cle- uh, Piazza's girlfriend. You know, uh, I was doing like, like, and then <laughs> and then the, the Piazza has this like, this guy talking about. Okay. Right. And listen, it you can you can look at that World Series bats or anything a million times, okay? And I'll never forget this because you go in the interview room and Mark Kriegel asked the first question and I asked the second question, okay? Right. Why did he do it? Okay, Joe. Now I understand Joe's got to support his player, Joe Torre. Sure. But he's looking at me and Joe Torre looks at me and I'm going to go mention with Joe Torre. I like him a lot, but he looks at me and says. Well, why would you do it? I said, yeah, that's what we want to know, Joe. That's the question we want to ask. Yeah. Why did he do it? Okay. Yeah. And then you heard all, he got all the, the you know, all, all like, as Bob Raisman calls it, Ali A. Jarrett came out and basically, <laughs> you know, said, well, you know, he thought it was the ball. Well, He thought it was the ball. That's my favorite. Now, now listen, I was born at night, but not last night. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so... He thought it was the ball. Other than the fact that it's a different shape and color, I could see how he would think it's the yeah. ball. But okay, let's say he thought it was the ball. He's why throwing he throw it at him. At <laughs> why is he throwing it at him? <laughs> right. I mean, that still hasn't been explained. Oh, uh, I know. I, and, I, and I think we should you – know, and then this year, when Piazza has a chance to go in the Hall of Fame, when it's an absolute no-brainer, he's the best offensive catcher I ever saw play. I didn't see Campanella and Barra, but I saw right. Bench and I saw Fisk. And I saw Carter, and they're all wonderful players. But Piazza was was offensively he, better than all three of those he's guys. The best, he's the best offensive catcher of all time. He is. And, he, and he, just, he should have been a no brainer. We did a whole show on it. He should have been a no brainer first ballot Hall of Famer. Period. And the reason that people say he took steroids was he had an acne on his back. Yes, that's that's what they're laying this on. And I, I tell you, there was a period of time when I had acne on my back, and if you saw me, you would never, you would never um, <laughs> think that I took steroids. Let's just put it right. that way. You, were, you, you didn't have the deer antler spray at that time? Well, <laughs> unless the steroids were filled with chocolate sauce, I wasn't taking it. <laughs> unless, it was, okay. unless it was shaped as a bear claw, I didn't care. Yeah, uh... I mean, you know, it was just, you know, I have to laugh. That's, that's what the doctors and the media think. He had back yeah. acne, so he must, he must have. Every kid. In high school, that has acne on his face, right. basically took steroids. And believe me, I, I went with some point decks that I know weren't taking steroids in high school. <laughs> I, but I gotta, I gotta, I gotta think that Go some ahead. of these guys. I'm sorry, Steve. <laughs> no, <laughs> I gotta think that some of these guys that think that he took steroids because he had acne uh, five years ago or ten years ago were the same guys that were touting him as a first ballot Hall of Famer when he was playing. Oh no doubt, Am I right? No doubt about it. And listen. McGuire, we're all part of the problem. We all 
Mark McGuire, Mark McGuire hit the right field scoreboard at Shea. And I'm not talking about he touched the manufacturer Hanover's truck. No, he was up no, a, It was halfway up, up the scoreboard. Okay? Yeah. So, that, and everyone's like, Paul Bunyan, he's Paul Bunyan. Let me tell you something, okay? The only guys I ever saw hit that scoreboard at Shea were left-handed hitters. They were guys like Strawberry, Mo Vaughn. Those guys hit it. Willie Stargell. Those guys hit the board. But right, William, William right hand yeah. batter hit the board. And I'll tell you this right now. The way Barry Bonds was treated and the way Mark McGuire's been treated is so different from me. Just look at a guy like Joe Buck. Now, I know Joe Buck has his own hidden agenda because he had the call of McGuire, so God forbid he ever criticizes McGuire. Right. He won't, mm. okay? But he'll say, well, Barry Bonds did this. And we know Barry Bonds took steroids. We, we, we know. I mean, you know. It's but, no big but, yeah. but it, And I have a feeling, just in the back of my mind, it's a little bit of a black-white thing, just a Could little be. bit. Could be. I mean, it's. I think it's part. I think it's. I. I. I don't think there's any doubt that there is something racial there. I. I. I would totally agree with you. But I. I think the bigger issue with Bonds has always been that he's a jerk. I mean, that he's just. He's just always been. And now that doesn't. I'm. I'm not exonerating. Uh, uh, people for his uh, the 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 writers for their harsh treatment of him or anything like that that doesn't exonerate them from the behavior. But you know why is he treated differently than Kirby Puckett or something? You know what I mean? Or 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 uh, why was Eddie Murray treated differently than another? You know, like I think right. a big part of you look at Bonds and Jeff Kent at that time, right? Right. You had two, you had two of the most surly, jerky guys, apparently, like of all time, right? So uh, that must have been a fun clubhouse to be in. But, um, but I'll tell you though, I never had a problem with Jeff Kent, never. Really? And, he, and I'll tell you this too: I That's had better conversations with Barry Bonds than I did ever with Mark McGuire. Oh, I no, no, I, I, I believe it, but, but I not mean, a lot of them, not a he, lot of them. Right. It was very rare. But when Bonds started oh, talking, God. and you were alone with Bonds, he was interesting. He was engaging. Now okay. the next day, he passed you in the hallway, and he wouldn't even look. At he you. wouldn't even say hello to you, of course, right? Okay, but, but my point is, I never even had those conversations with McGuire. to me was surly, very surly, as surly as Bonds, until he got to that year when he was hitting home runs. Okay. Then all of a sudden he changed. Okay, and I think, listen, the the, the thing with McGuire is that, listen, we're all at fault. The 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 media, everybody, home runs saved the sport after yep. they wiped out an entire season. Okay, it saved the sport. But I think that in the process, it created the monster that stayed with the sport and is still with the sport. And so in a lot of ways, we're all to blame for it. Now, the baseball writers can take the holding the vow attitude and say, I'm going to make a stand in this now. I'm not voting for anyone this year. You know, like, okay, take the gavel off your hands and get off the soapbox and now admit that you stuck your head in the sand for 10 years. Yeah. Okay. That doesn't make – that we don't erase that now because you didn't vote for anyone in 2013. Okay, no, that doesn't, doesn't change anything. Exactly. And, and I, listen, to me, to me, and I, nobody hates Roger Clemens more than me. Nobody. <laughs> Maybe Mike Piazza does. 
I think Roger Clemens deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Okay? I think I think Barry Bonds deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. I think I think that Sammy Sosa deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. I do think the Hall of Fame this is where people miss the boat on the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame is a historical place. It's a museum. Sport of baseball. That's it. It's you a museum. You can't just say, well, okay, Pete Rose bet on baseball, so he's got the most hits in baseball, but he's been on the Hall of Fame. Roger Clemens is the most striking anyway. You have a right to put on their plaque what happened in their lives. You have a right yeah. to say that Pete Rose was banned from the game because he bet on baseball. Okay? You have a right to say Roger Clemens was brought up on perjury charges and was acquitted. But to this day, people believe he took steroids. You have a right to write that on his plaque. Reflect and the you history. You don't have a right to do is ignore it. Yeah, right. it's 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 supposed to. I know you, uh, Rich. I know you follow uh, Matt. You know Matthew Callan, who writes for Amazing Avenue and and is a, mm-hmm. a fantastic writer. And he wrote a very great, good, very good writer. Yeah, he wrote a he wrote a great piece um, when uh, the Hall of Fame vote came out, and he just talked about the idea that look, it's a museum. You don't get to just turn your back on an era of baseball history because you don't like the way it went down. If you're going to do that, then you better take Ty Cobb out, and you better take out all the players that played before uh, you know, integration because right. uh, you know, they played in an era where there was segregation in the game. And you better take you know, the guys that did uppers in the 70s out you know, and did amphetamines and stuff like that. Like You don't get to – you don't get to decide what reflects that era of baseball. It's a museum. Your I job agree with you more. Your I job agree with you more. The reflection of the game at that time. I couldn't agree with you more, and this is what I'm going to say to all the baseball writers who decide they were going to vote for anybody. Have they ever been on deadline and taken five-minute energy? Right. Or popping <laughs> amphetamine? Or... <laughs> Say that stuff to make deadline, okay? Because right. I can tell you for a fact I've seen it. So what you're telling me is those guys should never be in the writer's wing of the Hall of Fame. <laughs> That's right. Even That's if they were great writers. Even you if they were think? tremendous writers. That those writers should... I know writers that bet on sporting events in illegal ways. Mm. Okay? This is what I have to laugh with the media. I would love the media to be exposed as players are. But the bottom line is... And this is where they lose it a little bit. Public wouldn't care. Nope. If I sat here and told you I know 10 writers pop amphetamines, if I told you 10 writers sell drugs, right. okay, you wouldn't care. Because nope. you're like, they're a bunch of faceless, nameless guys. But if I told you 10 players did it, oh. you'd be like, what team mm-hmm. are they on? Oh, right. I hope they're not on my team. Okay? And that would be the reaction. And I think that's where they lose it to me. That's where they lose me, the media. Okay? Yeah. No, it's true. There's higher moral grounds for people that. And I'll say, I'll say, you know, listen, I don't know if you ever read the book that Bob Clappish wrote that was the worst team money can buy. It was about the Mets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the most interesting part of that book, I thought, and it was really a bad book, okay, but the more <laughs> interesting part of the book was that it, it kind of taught us how writers undercut each other. Right. right. I mean, you know, now it's weird, and I've been a beat reporter for a long time. It's weird. You're, you're, you're in a job, and you're working, instead of working with the people that are in your company, you're, you're around your competitors all the time. 
kind of a different dynamic than most people That's encounter true. in their businesses. Right. But if I told you the amount of sniping and snipping, and there's more going on between the media than there is between players. <laughs> <laughs> the rivalries are bigger. Oh, my God. It's like, you know, and then they'll come up to you. Because I kind of, like, I try to get along with everyone, but there are certain people I go, Kevin Burkler and I laugh about this all the time because we're like, you know, it's a game, guys. It's not it's not the end of the world. We're not covering the, the war in Iraq. We're not covering whether a surgeon commit, a surgeon performs brain surgery correctly. Right. Okay? It's a Nobody baseball dies. game. Yeah, right. It's a baseball game. It's but supposed they, to be. They, they treat it like it is. Yeah. They yeah, treat it like it is. I understand it's their real life because it's their job and, and that's how they put food on the table. But, like, and Steve, you say this all the time sports is supposed to be an escape from real life, it's supposed to be entertaining. And, and the other thing is, the game's not enough anymore. Well, okay. Yeah, that's true. I, I have to laugh when I hear. You know, people, you know, right. I hear, I hear media all the time. You know, you eat with them because you eat in the press room every day with them and you hear them talking. You hear them say things like, oh, the boring day, the boring part of my day is starting now. And you're like, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> the game's about, this is why we're here. I got to tell you, I, I drive to City Field every day for every game and I still get a charge. That's okay? awesome. That's great. I still get a charge. I, I've been doing this since 1982. I still get a charge. Of course I've done other things in my life. I've run air sales department for TV networks. I, I consult. I, I, I coach. I, you know, I'm big on changing the culture of companies. A lot of companies have brought me and kind of helped them with that. And I love all that stuff that I do because I love interacting with people. Right. But when I go to the ballpark, whatever's happening in my life, that isn't so yeah, nice, whatever it is, family illness, relationship trouble, whatever it is, okay, for three and a half hours, I don't oh. like to think about it. And and I think that um, that makes me feel fortunate that I'm doing it. I don't think I'm better than anyone else. I just think I was in the right place at the right time. I think, and I, and I, and I, I, I'm I'm engrossed in it, okay? And I'm a 52-year-old man now, and I still feel the same way I did about it. And there are 32-year-old members of the media that cover the Mets that now have told me they hate baseball. How can you hate it? First of all, if you hate it, you shouldn't be doing it, okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Secondly, what do you hate about it? What do you hate about it? What can you possibly hate about it? This is the other thing that, that people understand. Fans don't want to hear about Beat reporters travel problems. They don't oh. want to hear them. Oh, oh, I'm in Cincinnati today. Yeah, the guy's like, yeah, I'm going to work today. I'm digging a ditch, okay? Yep. You want to dig a ditch? And I'll go to Cincinnati, okay? And I'll sit in it and wait for my rental car for an hour, and I still <laughs> like it, okay? Yep. You can't ever forget that, that people would pay to do what you do, and you're getting paid for it. Yep. And that doesn't mean I don't have my bad days where I'm like, I wish I was on the beach somewhere. I wish, you know, call my girlfriend up and just, you know, go go to, you know, Bermuda for two weeks during the baseball season. But I think that what you find is that 
you always get back to your core. I call it the three circles of life. Okay, if, if if your life's a Venn diagram with three interlocking circles, right? And circle A is what you're good at, and circle B is what you're passionate about, and circle C is what your financial metric for success is. All three of those things have to be in cinch, and none of them can override the other. Because if you have a job that pays really good, but you're not happy, you're not doing what you're best at, you eventually will be unhappy. Same thing if you're in something you love and you're not making a lot of money, eventually you're going to be unhappy too. You have to constantly look for that intersection of your three circles. And to me, being a sports reporter, it intersects all of it to me. Um, do we get paid a lot, a lot of money? We do okay. I mean, I own real estate. I I don't live paycheck to paycheck. Right. Now, could I be making more if I was a lawyer? Yeah, I could. <laughs> But you know what? I may not be as happy. Yeah. Okay? Or I may not be doing what... what the, the thing with the three circles, though, you got to be careful about is sometimes people confuse what they're good at with what they're passionate about. That's the tricky one, to figure out which is which. But other than that, it, it is a great exercise to use, and I wish some of these media guys would use it because a lot of them are really good writers, and they waste their time being Rona Barrett's. They waste their time being gossip reporters. Yep. And that's where we go back full circle to what I said. I don't know when they all became sophomore girls in high school. <laughs> but something happens. Yeah. And and it's just Well, I think it's I think it's coming back around too, Rich. And I, I think one of the things that Brian and I uh have seen over the three years of doing this show and stuff and really Becoming like a home to bloggers and, and having guys like Matt Cerrone on and having Ted Berg on and having uh, Patrick Flood or Brian Bassett or any of the – or Joe Caparoso from TurnOnTheJets.com. Like having these guys on uh, and, and talking to them and, and, and sort of taking ownership of the sports media, taking ownership of your teams – and taking ownership of the way you root for your teams is sort of like a – I think it's becoming the new model. I really do. Like I grew up on – Brian too. We grew up on WFAN. I mean we grew we grew up on – W. I used to listen to WFAN, you know, 18 hours a day. Like I used to fall asleep to it at night. Right. You know, I listened, used to listen to it for eight hours at work or whatever in the car. I can't anymore. I can't anymore because – I feel like it's too guided. It's too, Brian. You, you know, we've talked about this, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons we started this show was is so we could have a conversation about sports that didn't involve know-it-allness or uh, I'm smarter than you or I steer the conversation. You know. You know, if you're talking about facts, you could be wrong. You could have a fact wrong. But if you're talking about opinions, there's no wrong opinion. That's it. That's it. It, it. You know, sports talk radio, especially for me, became and and for Bry as well, has become right or wrong. You know, it's not a matter of opinion, and it's sports. There is no right or wrong unless you're telling me Babe Ruth didn't hit 714 home runs. Well, he did. He hit 714 home runs. You know, Mike Jorgensen wore number 22. We know this. These are facts. These are indisputable. That's fine. But if you want to talk to me about who's the best catcher of all time, that's an opinion. Absolutely. 
and that's that's where I think the conversation and 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 bloggers and Matt Zarone's really you know we we had Matt on very early on and, and hopefully we're going to have him on again this summer, but Matt Zarone and Mets blog sort of figured that out. He sort of tapped into something that's he's you know his site is part archival but also opinion driven, and he sort of figured it out. You know, that he was uh, sort of at the forefront of this idea of like having a sports blog for your team where you could give your own opinions, but also curate information and stuff. It's I I it's an exciting time to me. <laughs> you know, it's a frustrating time to me as a New York sports fan, but it's an exciting time. Well, I think change is always slow and painful, yeah. you know, and, and I think that's what it is. But it's been great um, hanging out with you guys. For as long yeah. as I have, and <laughs> I really, run, Rich. Uh, I really but, enjoyed it. Anytime, give me a call. Keep it the good work, guys, and we'll uh, we'll keep uh, blogging and 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 tweeting. We absolutely will, and and uh, hopefully we'll see you out at City Field this season because Brian and I do go quite often. Okay, you can count on it. A- anytime, guys. We'll uh, buy you a beer. Thanks a lot, Rich. Take care. Ciao. Bye. Uh, so that was uh, Rich Catino. <laughs> That was a good uh, good drop right there, Peach. What boy, what a spot. He's great. He is he, he I mean, that was just fantastic. Can't thank Rich enough. Yeah, I'm, he really I'm doing the Venn diagram and I can't fill in I I have nothing to fill in the third circle. I, I think I, I did use, it wrong. Use Get cheese. him back on the phone. Use cheese. That's just expression. <laughs> That's both what you're good at and what you're passionate about. And probably fits well, into an, a financial metric too. Jeez, <laughs> that was amazing. I like that guy. Yeah, we 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 need to have him on again. That was fantastic. What a what a just a uh, boy. I, do we talk a little Super Bowl? I we have to talk a little Super Bowl because it's the biggest sporting event of the year, and it just happened. Right. Um, and we have and we have stories to share. We about our Super Bowl watching experience. So let's wrap up Rich this way and say, "Wow, yeah, can't can't thank Rich enough. He really he he shed a lot of light on things that we're passionate about, and it was just great to get some insight from somebody who's who's there every day. You and know, he's been there for thirty years, and it's almost as if he's listened to the show before. Well, he's on. The, it's 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 a treat to be, have somebody that's there every day be on the same wavelength as us. Yes, I mean it's amazing. That was yeah. that was a really really uh, a great conversation, and that's what we were hoping for, and that's what the show is about. And again, we want to thank Rich uh, uh, tremendously, tremendously, tremendous thanks, huge thanks. How about we just go with big thanks. And follow him on Twitter if you get a chance. Yes, he's uh, at, uh, what is it, at Catino, C-O-U-T-I-N-H-O. Uh, I think that's his Twitter handle. It's in the, uh, the link is in the episode. Um, if you click on Rich's name, you'll be able to follow him on Twitter. He's really a great presence on Twitter. He's very positive. Um, he doesn't get, you know, it's not that he's all pom-poms and stuff. You know, he'll get on people. He's, but he's level-headed. 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 And... I mean, just some great stories in there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna need to go listen back to this and digest some of that because that was fantastic. Uh, sure. Huge thanks to Rich. Um, so, 
Uh, tell me about your Super Bowl. Well, here's the thing with my Super Bowl. This was the first Super Bowl I did not watch in real time. Kinky. I'll elaborate. It was, a busy, it was a busy day with the kids and stuff around the house, and it got to a point where I knew I was not going to be able to stop what I was doing at 6 o'clock to sit down and watch the game. So I set the old DVR. I said, you know, I'm going to set the DVR. I'm going to watch the game. The old DVR? The old DVR, not the new one. So you didn't use the new DVR? No, nah, I used the old one, and that's, and that's probably where my problem was. Because you, you used DVR Classic. I did, I, you know. DVR 2.0. DVR 2K. <laughs> so I so I set the DVR. Does that DVR have Charles Dolan on the cover? It's got really big buttons on right. the, on the remote, <laughs> and you have to get up and walk across the room it's, to. Right, it's uh, the huge uh, remote that they used to make for people who can't see right. well, like for old people. It's, so it's the, the old people remote. It's actually the same size as the television. It just sits right next to it. it. It's like the remote is the size of an iPad. This is huge. DVR classic. Okay. Yeah. And it's slow. Very yeah, slow. Fast forward. You can't. No. There's not much you can do. No. But I was able to record the game. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know what? I'm. It, it did have this feature. I'm going to be slick here. I'm going to be slick. I'm going to add the 30-minute extension. Because who knows what could possibly happen. What could happen. Right? I said, let me add the 30-minute extension. That'll cover me. It'll be fine. You know, it'll go till 10.30. And I'll be able to, you know, I'll be able to sit down nice, watch the game. So I finally get to watch the game. It was like 8.30 before I finally was able to sit down and start the Super Bowl. 8.30. And I'm watching the game. And I'm, and I'm, I, it was complete operation shutdown. No Twitter, no Facebook, no, no the phone. I mean, our, our chat room was blowing up. I got back to it at the end of the night. There were 182 messages. I wasn't involved in any of them. I just, I completely isolated. We thought, we, thought we were concerned. I know. Well, I, yeah. I, <laughs> we were about to send out a search party. I couldn't even get in and say, hey, listen, I'm, I have it recorded. I just, I didn't want to take a chance. It's the Super Bowl. This is not, you know, game number 42 of the Mets season. This is the Super Bowl. So I'm watching the game. I'm watching the game. And then, of course, there's the power outage. In the middle of the game. So, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the Super Bowl yet. <laughs> Wait, there's a power outage? <laughs> what do you... What? Are you, oh, you haven't seen it? I had no idea. Oh. That was my story. What? My story was I haven't watched the Super Bowl yet. So, you didn't even know what happened. I didn't even know there was a power outage. Right, well, I'm, I'm not going to ruin who No, was. I'm joking, of course. I know. So... It, it finally got to like the fourth, and now it's the fourth quarter, and the 49ers get the ball back, and they're driving down the field. And for whatever reason, I needed to, I, I was like, oh, I was getting into it. like, oh, this is the last drive of the game. This is going to be great. And I figured, you know, let me just, let me go get a drink real quick. And I hit pause on the, on the recording. Right. So I pause it. And to my horror, at the bottom of the screen where the bar is, which tells you like the status of, of where you are in the recording. I love where this is going. The recording was to have lasted four hours and 30 minutes. When I hit pause, I looked down at the bar on the bottom, and it said 429. <laughs> <laughs> when I tell you my stomach dropped <laughs> down to my knees. I was, That's what you get for using DVR Classic. <laughs> what? Wait, what? This is, wait, 
and now, now I'm nervous. So I hit play again, and I watch a couple more plays. And the two – I don't know if it was the two-minute warning. I'm, I'm hazy on this because it was so traumatic. It was either the two-minute warning or it was a play where Kaepernick kind of rolled out and ran out of bounds. He ran like 15 yards, ran out of bounds, yeah. down to like the Ravens 20 or somewhere in that area. At that point, it freezes, <laughs> and a box comes up and says, do you wish to delete this recording? <laughs> You lose. Good day, sir. You so I, get nothing. So I did not. Now, luckily, it is the year 2013, and within seconds, I was able to find out what happened. Right. Well, that's what I was going to say. You, you, you're you not going to be hard-pressed to find Super Bowl highlights. I, yeah, I did I did find out that, you know, what happened, but it was, it was very funny that I invested <laughs> Delete. this time and... The game ran out with two minutes left. <laughs> at at the uh, the critical juncture. Yeah. So I did, I had I had no idea. I didn't I didn't see any of that ending live. And 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 completely completely thrown for. Now I'm already disoriented about what happened. <laughs> and I flip on the news, and the news shows the last play in the end zone. Kaepernick throwing a ball, and the hold, you know, the holding the holding in the end zone. Right. And and you know and then they're saying and, the, and it's an incomplete pass and the and the Ravens win the Super Bowl <laughs> and I'm thinking oh 34-20 then they put the score up 34-31 right now I'm completely bad like what is going on here well and also because you're a degenerate gambler so that was upsetting I'm degenerative I'm a degenerate <laughs> gambler That's yes That's I get funny. worse as, as the game goes on <laughs> you're a degenerative gambler right but it was. <laughs> That means that your gambling ability deteriorates as, as, yeah. the, as the game goes on. If I don't, if I don't win early, I'm, I'm done. I said degenerate. I said it right. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm saying that I'm a degenerative. You're making me self-conscious. No, it's not you. I'm, <laughs> telling, you, I'm telling you what I am. But let me hear your story because I obviously wasn't as traumatic, but no, certainly, certainly a lot different experience than, than years past. The usual, right? yes. Uh, one before we get to my story, because the details of my story are inconsequential. <laughs> um, do you call that hold? Let's 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 just say this. Let's just get this out on the table. If that's the Jets, and that call is not made, I probably stop watching football. If that if the Jets were the the Forty Niners, Forty Niners. Okay, and that call is not made i probably that's probably it for me in football i don't buy that that's no that's that, either that or i'm getting arrested i i would see something like that more <laughs> you're going with the latter there i could see i could see some sort of trouble happening with you <laughs> yeah that was uh that would be that would be bad for me in football that would be it i think I you, think I would rap. I don't think I would watch football. I don't think I'd be able to watch football anymore. I don't think a judge would allow you to watch football anymore. <laughs> That's right. You're, saying, like, you're saying restraining order between I, me and football. I think there might be, you know, there might be a moratorium on <laughs> Sam Pete and the game of football for some time. Yeah. Um, but that being said, yeah, it was a hold. But do you call it? Do you, um. They weren't calling it all game. We know it was a hold. Do you call it? Let me rephrase. What was that? Do you have a problem that they didn't call it? I don't. 
I think I think the reason Neither I did I, I the reason I didn't I didn't have a problem mainly stemmed not the Jets <laughs> a and B it stemmed from the fact that I really didn't want the 49ers to win right that's uh, I I di- uh, dislike both those teams very much yeah and we but, talked about that going in it was very difficult to to have yeah. a rooting interest but it turned out to be a great game it turned out to be a tremendous game and um, I don't have a problem with them not calling the hold there. Because they did let things go all game. Mm-hmm. And you have the a situation where it's a example of, an, an example of, the referees would have decided that Super Bowl. If you make that call. And they would have gotten criticized for that, too. And I'm not entirely convinced he catches the ball without the hold. That's, uh, that's my big thing. Right. My big thing is, yes, was it a hold? Absolutely. If you're Crabtree, you just have to go down. Now, I know that's so hard to say to Michael Crabtree. You're about to win the Super Bowl. You're going to make the big catch on fourth and goal from the seven, and you're going to be the guy and be the hero and stuff. But the minute that the DB puts his hands on you, you just should go down. Go down. You will get the call. But... All that aside, I'm not sure it was a catchable ball. I can't give the 49ers the game, in essence, on that play. It's not like it was in his hands. It's not like he went up to get it. It's not like he was torn down and he went to get the ball. I agree. And I'll throw throw something else into this, too, regarding the the officials. Cumin? What? (laughs) Sorry. What am I talking Paprika? (laughs) Sorry. Some sort of spice. Yeah. There was already controversy or maybe not so much controversy, but there was going into the game with the selection of this particular yes. individual as the, as the referee for the game, there was already some questioning going on about the merits of, of their, you know, did, did, were they good enough to be on, you know, officiating yeah. the biggest game of the year. Was it a, uh, uh, you know, a residual effect of the lockout or the uh, the strike or whatever? Right. And or, they, was it were a... they penalizing uh, guns? <laughs> Ed Hockley. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so now, if if the storyline becomes they, they make that call, the, 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 this is gonna be, it's going to be a field day. The entire game is going to be overshadowed, and the story will only be the officiating. I I totally agree. You know, and and to your point, it wasn't a catchable ball, so I'm okay with it, it, I'm it, okay, it, I'm okay with the non-call. That was in the air. I, I mean, that was up for debate. It's up for debate whether that was a catchable ball. Yes, it's a fade pattern. Which, by the way, offensive genius. Those are three, that was like the Brian Schottenheimer playbook came out. Apparently, the offensive genius got a little tight when they got within inside the ten yards. Well, here's, here's what drove me nuts. I'm watching that, and I'm I'm looking at Twitter. So I have Twitter going at the same time, which is fun. Again, watch the game. You have Twitter. This is like a good Twitter thing because mm-hmm. you're seeing people's instant thoughts. But I wasn't too heavy into Twitter, uh, just looking at it briefly. And somebody said, oh, you don't want to score too fast when they get the first and goal at the seven. Right. I, I didn't know that. One is, what, <laughs> that's right. So they get first and goal at the seven with like, you know, Two timeouts or one time or one timeout, but like the two minute warning, a lot of time. They maybe get first and goal at the seven, like two fifteen left or something like that. 
and oh, you don't want to score. They're going to score too fast and leave the Ravens. You score and you score immediately. It's the Super Bowl. Yeah. You are oh, yeah. down by five points. You score too sweet. You get in the end zone, and they they had to take a timeout because they were taking such a long time between the, before the third down play. You score. You don't. You do No, 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 no. You're not winning. You're not ahead by two points, and you don't want to score. You know, a touchdown, or, or or you're not ahead by a point. Say. You don't want to score a touchdown too quickly. Go up by eight and uh, give them a chance. You know what? If I'm if I'm two minutes away from the end of the Super Bowl, I'll, I'll take the lead. I'll take my chances with you the take, lead. Yeah, take a lead. I'll be. Yeah, I'm okay and, with that. And put your all-world defense out on the field. Oh, right, right. Put one of the best defenses in the NFL out on the field. The vaunted 49ers defense. Right. You score. Toot sweet. They took forever. And then they come out of the timeout. You know, uh, uh, Kaepernick is bozing uh, on up to the line. He doesn't like the play call. He's forced to use their last timeout on a dead ball. Good job, everybody. So he can't run now. They come out of third down with a rollout play to the right. How do how do you roll Colin Kaepernick out at the, out out, uh, out outside of the pocket by design around the goal line? You only give the defense half the field to defend. And you have basically one receiver in, in, in the pattern there. You know, with Michael Crabtree, who's at the two-yard line, by the way? Not even in the end zone. Right. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Oh, tar- oh, man. Shoddy, 2.0. They deserve to lose that game just based on their performance at the Absolutely. end of the game. But, Absolutely. But, 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 let's not take away from... The Ravens defense. I'm taking away from the Ravens defense. You can't take away from the Ravens defense. I've done it. You can't. They they did a great job taking they, they taking did. the weapon away. They called they called a great defense at the end. They did a good job. I mean, if you said to John Harbaugh, though, I can't even talk about the Harbaugh's. If you said to the Baltimore Ravens defense that on those last three plays. We got first and goal from the seven, and we're not going to design a run for Kaepernick. We're not going to run the read option, and we're going to throw a fade on fourth down to a receiver not named Calvin Johnson. Boy, Brian, I sign for that every time. I sign for that. I I send a nice thank you card. That would be great if, uh, if John Harbaugh did that. Like a gift basket, like at Christmas this year, like or, or at <laughs> at like this got to be before Christmas, like at Thanksgiving, you know. And he just like he writes in the card, or no, like Harbaugh's birthday. Let's say Jim Harbaugh's birthday is before any of the major holidays in the season. Hey, by the way, thanks, man. <laughs> Those play calls at the end, I know what you did. You did the Gina Davis in the League of Their Own. You dropped the ball on purpose. Yeah, well, so I could be, so I could be the hero. I don't know. I looking at at the way Jim Harbaugh reacted. I don't believe he did that. <laughs> no, I no. I'm I'm saying John Harbaugh should do it just to needle his brother. Oh yeah. Brother. Oh yeah. Yeah. The one, the last thing, and then I'll I'll tell you about my experience real quick, and then we'll bring PJ in here because I have to talk to him about Sound City, um, and about Mel Brooks. <laughs> Never thought I'd say those two things in conjunction, <laughs> um, or in succession, succession. 
not secession. They're not leaving the union so much. We're in the sixth session. <laughs> We're in the sixth session. Um, it, and, and I've heard this comment a lot, and I totally agree with it. And it just further confirms my extreme dislike of Jim Harbaugh. His reaction after the game. If you can't lose gracefully to your brother, <laughs> to your own brother, yeah, you know you may not be a good guy. I don't, I don't care for that. It's your brother. I think they call that bad form. Go do th- <laughs> that's really poor form, really. I, I believe the Brits would say, you know, Jim Harbaugh, bad form. Really, you, you know, your team is top table, but that is poor form. Cal, that, come on, guys. I know. It's, it's your bro. I know. Hug it out with your bro. <laughs> what would have been great is if he got in a like uh, a Jim Schwartz fight with his brother going off the field. <laughs> well, if John like gave him a wedgie, and, right. uh, you know. <laughs> A wet willy. Here they come to uh, to midfield for the post-game noogie. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, John will get to deliver that noogie. Oh, to, he's the older uh, brother, to Jim. too. To Jim, right. Um, so my experience, real quick, uh, just a different deal. Uh, when you realize that I've gone to my fair share of Super Bowl parties, I uh, I enjoy that the celebratory nature of the Super Bowl. Um, uh, so in the first quarter, uh, Teresa was out shopping, grocery shopping, and I was home with Wes. During the Super Bowl, she was during shopping. the Super Bowl, and grocery wow. shopping. That's that, got to be extremely productive on Super Bowl Sunday. There's got to be nobody in the supermarket during done, the game. She was done in like 25 minutes. Wow, that's a yeah, great yeah, idea. At a run of the place. And it's like when you win a contest and they shut the supermarket <laughs> right. down. Right. It was like speed shopping. That's right. Like, like that game show. <laughs> Remember that game show they used to have in the grocery oh, store? Uh, supermarket Sweep. Supermarket Sweep. Right. That's exactly what Teresa was like. You've got five minutes to clear the shelves of whatever you can fit in your cart. Go! Actually, it was like the opposite of that. Like she could have taken five hours in there. A very she's, leisurely uh, experience. in there. She's reading ingredients. <laughs> they had restocked the tortilla chips. She was having a party. <laughs> Magnificent. I think they set up a little cove, like a little Copacabana there that for is... non-football fans. They were eating cheese. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I'm watching Wes, you know, uh, making him dinner. I got the game on. We're watching it, me and Wes. He's not interested. No, not yet, huh? I mean, he's watching it. He must have loved the commercials, though. And then he's yelling, Peppa Pig. Daddy, daddy, Peppa Pig. You know? <laughs> so in the first quarter, I'm making some pasta nice for him. Little macaronis. The elbows? Uh, no, no, uh, linguine. Like a, like a spinach linguine. Oh, that, ooh. Yeah, so like a for the linguine. kids. Yeah, wow. and then I use the uh, I use Good. The, I use the four cheese, obviously the the mm-hmm. sauce. I didn't have time to make gravy, right. obviously. So I use the classical four cheese. By the way, I mean, is there a better jarred sauce? Vincent's. 
Oh, I, no, erroneous. Really? Love, yes. Really? Vincent's garlic and oil. Gar, uh, not garlic and oil, roasted garlic. I'm just waiting for PJ to yell at us. Well, just the mere concept of jarred sauces. No, he's. I think he's going to be okay with that. Yeah. What I will tell you, though, is he, I bet you he does not think Classico or Vincent's is the best jarred sauce. No. I I will I would guess that it would not be ragu. No, it's definitely, it's definitely not prego. It's not ragu. PJ, where are you? This is like this is the ultimate time you're supposed to jump in and be the third man in the. There he is. There he comes. Nice hat. Hey, what's the goal? How you You're say? Like, you like it a trip? You take it a cash. The cash is a nice. The trip is a nice. Pidge, you have to get a jar uh, spaghetti sauce. What are you doing? Uh, we like a small brand called Talarico's in a pinch. Nice. And uh, right. I also will buy uh, Mario Batali's sauce. Really? Italy? Yes. Italy? <laughs> I like how delicately you said that, Cal. Well, that's, that's what I when I think of Mario Batali, I, I see him like if he's explaining his restaurant, it's Italy. It's Italy. Um, all right, and that's uh, the Talarico. Do you know the family? Are they up on like, are they uh, uh, over in Red Bank or something? Like, are they local? They might be from Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. This is our sauce, all right. Would we? Would we also shake down? Would we also shake that open for Talarico? Tutoroso. Tutoroso. Is very good. Well, we have a problem over here at the PJ house in that uh, we do have to watch the sodium. And jarred mm. sauce uh, can be uh, a little bit yeah, so uh, offside. So what you're saying is it's great I gave it to my kid. That's what you're saying. Your kid can take it. <laughs> right, you can't. <laughs> Don't give it to your father is what I'm saying. So I'm making the macaronis nice. I got, a, I'm, uh, I got some vegetables. Some fresh uh, broccoli, cauliflower that I'm. Uh, I got a little oil and a little garlic in a pan. And I'm heating that up and I'm cooking that and I'm mixing everything together. And the game's on. Nice. The Super Bowl. The Super Bowl. I'm wandering in. Oh, there's a play. Oh, okay. Um, that was the first half. <laughs> and I gotta get the food to Wes. I gotta watch him eat. Gotta make sure the things going on and he's eating and stuff. So. Um, it was a very different experience. Uh, I I I can't tell you I was I didn't enjoy it. I love watching my kid eat spaghetti or linguine in this particular instance. Which it had to be. I, a, this is funny because I have a combo thing going on with the two. The, uh, my experience with the two of your experiences combined. <laughs> and let me tell you. Let me tell you how it worked. Because I, I, I'm Mr. Mominate, making all kinds of food. The kids are running in and out, but at the same time, we have the game DVR'd right. uh, for six hours, Cal. You can have <laughs> six hours. Yeah, uh, lesson learned. Right. I mean, that's a that's less than a rookie mistake. And then what we're DVR doing time? is, when, there, when there's a great play or a great commercial, we're bringing the kids back in. Uh-huh. I said, buddy, look at this catch, because I'm really trying to get them to, like, he doesn't really watch a full football game. He may watch the first quarter, and then his attention goes, and he wants to go do something else. 
So I'm bringing them back for all the great stuff. Right. And then and then we're all eating. Everybody's eating. And then we eat, and then they get bored, and they run out. I, I lure them back with more food, and I hit play <laughs> on a great play. And it went it went fantastic. That sounds that sounds awesome. I gotta tell it, you, it, I, it, I I enjoyed it. Ended my experience. up at midnight with my son asleep on the couch because he had just dropped from exhaustion. He made it till the last thirty seconds of the game, and then uh-huh. we're like shaking him for the end. We're like, Dad, come on, man, come on, this is the end. And this is it. Up. Was he, he was he cradling a football? Yeah, and a taco. You created like a, a football and like a taquito. <laughs> did you make taquitos nice? Learn from me. We did wings. Oh wow. We did nachos. Cal, what what you you probably come to understand? They don't play at the Cachopo House. No. No, and I, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even presume to joke about anything like that. Especially with it's, food. They are not playing around. <laughs> it is serious. At at Cachopo Manor, it is serious. Can we call it the Cachopo Villa? Villa de Cachopo? We like to have plenty. Food. Yeah. See we Cal, Cal has a, Right. We we're not we can, like, oh, it's gonna go to waste, eat it. But we want to put out at least six or seven things <laughs> at all times. Because then it feels, to us, special. Yeah, it feels like family. That's nice. You're going to make me cry. Now, when you, yeah. live, in a, in, when you live in a house with uh, three females, you don't normally get that excitement around oh. the Super Bowl <laughs> at all. Now, so, so there was there was a point in the game, early in the game, where I was trying to watch it, and I had my daughter practicing her clarinet in the same room, <laughs> and she's in fourth grade, and just started playing the clarinet about four months ago. Right. So you're in the goose stage. Now listen, God bless her. She's trying, and as um. as. As somebody, as somebody with four months' experience goes, she's fantastic. But she is not um, David Sanborn by any stretch of the imagination. So how would it? How would it have gone if you had turned around and said, "You know, sweetie, I love you, but put that damn thing down." I would have got the game is on. My, my wife would have swooped in. You know, and stepped right between us, and I would, I, she might have just stopped recording the game right then and there on me. <laughs> it's fair to say you would not be doing this podcast right now. I don't think I'd be doing any podcasts <laughs> ever in the foreseeable future. Speaking uh, of DVR, my dad just got the Genie and NFL Sunday ticket. He's all excited. He just got it after the Super Bowl? After the season? What, this is like buying an air conditioner in February. My parents were unaware because everything they do is auto bill. They were unaware that they were paying $405 for folded cable <laughs> until they had stopped and looked at their bill. And my mom Wait, calls me what? up. She's like, what do you pay? I was like, we pay less than half that, Mom. What are you doing? So they ran out and got the They ran out and got direct TV right after the Super Bowl. 
I mean, what what are you paying for for four hundred and five dollars? What channels are they getting? It, I it, must it, know. Uh, all I can say is it's a bad. It was a bad deal. It was just the way they set up their phone, uh, <laughs> and the way they set up their, it's just stupid things. that's stupid. I could just I could just see <laughs> I could just see the sticker shock on Oh, we just lost the uh the over sixty five demographic. There goes the yeah, right. demo. Um I could apparently there are more old people in Nebraska than Florida. That obviously would have been where to go, Steve, you dummy. Um wow. there goes the Florida demo. That's the joke, Peach. There's the comedy. <laughs> I can just imagine your dad's Face with the sticker shock of a four hundred and five dollar cable bill. Yeah, yeah. And immediately they, they signed they sign up with the package. Mom. Yeah, I mean right. you know the introductory package where it's like, well, it's thirteen dollars a month when you first sure. sign on, and then sure. we'll the bill you later. Play. Right. So they this put is... it on the credit card, and everything they do just auto bills to the credit card. My mom's like, why? You know, Christmas is over. Why are the bills so high? Like, this you... is so much though, like buying a Christmas tree on like. February sixth. Right, they do that. Yeah, this is this, when you get. Oh, we're about to lose the live feed, so let me just say special thanks to Rich Catino from WFAN.com, the Mets beat reporter, for joining us in a great segment. Thank you so much, Rich. And uh, also check out www.rtusports.com. Check out BlueHavenNYC.com, and please go to iTunes and check out the podcast. Search "Ready to Unload" and subscribe, please. That was. Terribly radio-y. Oof. Please. I don't. I don't care for myself. When I. Why am I Johnny Radio? Hey, listen, guys. You know what? You had a great first ninety minutes, but now I think you're just running out of. Uh, running out of steam. What it is? Ninety? I thought we were good for more than ninety two hours. What are you talking about? Yeah. No. You know what? It was awesome. It was freaking awesome. Hey, listen. What a great. Right? What a great interview. Take your sorries. Put him in a sack. Um, that's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing. Um, I do want to do the fun load. Can we play? Should we play the fun load music? Yes. There's no fun load. I feel we like we can't do a fun load. There is a fun load. Oh, you're Don't... dying to talk about this. I am dying to talk about it. I'm going to talk about it. But I can't find the fun load music. Where is it? I'm playing the fun load music. I don't care. Well, you got me looking for it. I know. <laughs> Uh, PJ to sing it? There it is. PJ doesn't sing anymore on the phone. You can make it louder. It's okay. I didn't touch it. Block Talk Radio just did that. Well, it's like executive producer stepped in and <laughs> taken over the controls. Apparently, the suit's upstairs. Fun. Let's talk about infrastructure. You know, I think I heard Gavin McLeod in that one. Let's talk about <laughs> outfrastructure. <laughs> yeah, remember when we used to do that? We used to try to figure out who we heard in the fun load. Out, out for justice, I'll tell you, is what it is, not out for structure. That's Steven Seagal. I think <laughs> I heard Steven Seagal in that one. He was, he was absolutely in that one. You well, would be right. Hey, boys. I uh, I did want to talk about uh, the Mel Brooks WTF uh, wow. and also about Dave Grohl's documentary Sound City, but 
uh, I think we may be doing a bit of a disservice if we don't continue the jarred sauce conversation. We can always go back to the WTF. It's not with going Mel Brooks. To. I haven't listened to it yet. We need to have a regular segment on this show where we just praise uh, other podcasts who are just doing it so well. Yeah, I have no problem with that. <laughs> Tonight we'll be stealing from. <laughs> well, the, here's the here's honestly here's the very cool thing about WTF is that it there started. <laughs> no, I, seriously, it started at the same time that we did. We started to, and I'm not in any way, shape, or form comparing us to a podcast that has two million listeners a week or whatever. That's not my point. I started listening to WTF in December of 2009. He had done three episodes at that point. He's done 350. I've been. Well, listening. you got some street cred. No, it's not, well, yeah, but it's not a matter. Of, it's we started doing this show in December of 2009. We, it, it, I didn't even know what a podcast was really, and I've. Been listening to WTF for that. You just walked past your laptop and the mic was on. (laughs) That's right. We were trying to do a live radio show with Collins. Yeah. Uh, And you know what? Starting that from the ground up, really easy, by the way. Yeah. Starting that with absolutely no following and expecting phone calls worked well. (laughs) Go back and listen to them. They really worked well. They hold up these days. Very easy. I wiped them. They're gone. Oh, you good. Um,. But out of these 350 episodes, this is just a magnificent episode. And it's probably because I have a a personal tie to Mel Brooks or whatever and a personal uh, affinity and story about Mel Brooks that... um, I I disagree. All right. I disagree that that's the reason why that episode was so good. (laughs) You don't agree that I have a personal story with Mel Brooks? I, I, I completely stipulate to all of your love for Mel Brooks, but I'm saying the reason why the, the episode soared, uh, my, my, I have different reasons. That's all I'm but, but do you know my personal story with Mel Brooks? It's not that I'm just a fan. The bathhouse? No. <laughs> no, that's Albert Brooks. I'm sorry. That's Al- right. That's Derek Brooks, linebacker for the <laughs> Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You know, you know about I, I uh, got to meet Mel Brooks and. Uh, Mel Brooks blessed my wife and I on our first mm-hmm. date, and uh, uh, he, my wife was producing or, or was the assistant general manager at the Hilton Theater when Young Frankenstein was being produced there. I am a lifelong Mel Brooks ridiculous fan. Blazing Saddles is a top five movie of mine of all time. And when Teresa and I first started dating, she was the assistant general manager of the Hilton Theater. Mel Brooks was there with Young Frankenstein. They were in production. He took a shine to Teresa. He liked her quite a bit during the production process and the rehearsal process. She told him about me. I have met a guy because he used to say to her, is there a guy? Is somebody special? Actually, I met somebody. He's pretty cool. And then uh, at the cast party right before the opening – uh, on one of our first dates, on a boat in the west, uh, in the Hudson River, uh, that went around Manhattan, Mel Brooks was there, and she introduced me to Mel Brooks, and he said, "Is this the guy?" And she said, "Yes." And he said, "I like this guy. I like this guy. I got a good feeling about you two kids. I like this guy. You're very tall. I like this guy." And I said, uh, "Friend, Jennifer, friend." Sassafras. I had I nothing. Couldn't couldn't dump her then. Then. Uh no. 
look like so, uh, he blessed us. And then we saw him at the uh the opening night at the uh opening night party and he Steve, Teresa, how are you guys? And uh, I just uh, the man was a sweetheart. So that's why I have a personal connection to this Right, and it took every ounce of my being not to quote a movie back to him. Every ounce of my being when I first met him. Like when he said, when he said, uh, you know, uh, I have a good feeling about you too. You know, it took every ounce of my being not to be like, you know, baby, please, I am not from Havana or whatever. Anything. It took every ounce of my being not to quote Blazing Saddles. Yeah. Do you think that if you had told him, uh, made a Schwartz be with you? he would have reacted the same way? I'm not sure that was the movie to go with. And that would have been good. I can, look, I can recite all of Spaceballs, mm-hmm. much to the, as you know, Yes, I know. Cal and PJ, much to your consternation. The only uh, person who would have probably had to show more restraint when meeting a celebrity would be maybe if Keith from Sister Shakedown <laughs> had ever met Rick Springfield and what it would take for him to not start to play Jesse's girl. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, listen, pal. If you met uh, Roger, Roger Waters uh, Roger Wa- or David Gilmore tomorrow... You'd be at my uh, funeral. What's that? You'd be at my funeral. Is he playing your funeral? No, you would be at my oh. funeral. Would you just fall over like a stiff board? <laughs> Would it be cartoon style? Would like, you have the X's on your eyes immediately? Probably. <laughs> PJ, this is oh, there goes the day. <laughs> it's uh, and David Gilmore would be all British about it too. He'd be like, oh, right. "That's uh, that's a catastrophe." Isn't it? <laughs> it's the third time this week. His email address was Gilmore. That's ironic. Oh. <laughs> There's the irony. What a shame. Yeah, I thought this one was going to make it. <laughs> Uh, I would. I'd kill. I'd kill. I, I can't handle that. Cal, who do you got? Who would you... My guy? You got to have one for... I have one for sports. I tell you, Mel Brooks, even without Teresa and the actual ability to meet him, was would, be, would have been on my list without a doubt. And I've met a bunch of celebrities. Uh, you know, not in, in, in any sort of like friendly capacity like this was. But I've met and had an opportunity to interact with a celebrity here or there. Uh, he would have been on my list. He would have definitely been on my list. I don't think I would be that cool if I met Robert De Niro. All right. Okay. A little bit. A little bit. Right. It's nice to meet this guy's falling down. Believe us. <laughs> Believe us, this guy fell down. Come over to meet me. Falls down. All right. That, yeah. That's what's I'm, your name? What's your name? I'm already. Cow? I'm already <laughs> intimidated. Guy. Guy falls down. Comes over to me. Me falls down. I got these new shoes. He's all over my shoes. <laughs> I got new shoes. He falls down on my shoes. Uh, all right. So De Niro, who would be your sports guy? My sports guy would probably be Piazza. Is that right? I, I could... think so. Or me? No, no, no. No, be Keith Hernandez. Yeah, mine probably Keith too. Be Keith Hernandez. I would just have so much. That was the problem with meeting Mel Brooks. Like I had so much that I wanted to say. 
Right. And how many minutes do you have? Right, right. And and you know, I've got two minutes here at best. You know, I oh, it was it was great though. What a just a, a lovely Peach. Who do you got? Who I mean, we obviously know Gilmore. You see him, you fall down. Well, you know what? You, this one's a goner. You get a little. You get a little dumbstruck. My thing is, I'm a crier. I cry very easily. <laughs> so actually, I'd probably start weeping if I met Waters or Gilmore. I would. I'd get, I'd get a little choked up. I almost got choked up. Um, I worked uh, a couple of times with uh, Bono and the Edge. Oh boy. Um, security and whatnot. Um, and one of the times we were standing around uh, with the, with the two of them, and the other two guys were there, but they were they were farther away from me. The other two um, guys, those clients. <laughs> Because they were farther away, the 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 aura, the essence that was coming off of Bono and the Edge was rattling me. Right? <laughs> I I was really having uh, a bit of a time to pull together. But sports figures, you're gonna giggle. Well, maybe not because it's me. I would flip out if I ever met Metal Rock Lemon. Does he count? Really? Of course he counts. Oh, I used to love the Harlem Globetrotters, man. Love them. If I met Middle Lark Lemon, I I would, I would salute. This is the second time in about eight episodes, though, that Metal Lark Lemon has come up for you. By the way, wait, (laughs) no, it hasn't, has it? Oh yeah, Metal Lark Lemon. (laughs) PJ, I like that guy. If you met Jerry Lewis, would you cry along with him? Yeah, we'd cry together. Like the, the two of you just start crying. It's, 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 I have I, a lozenge already for when I meet uh, Jerry Lewis. I love it. You keep a lozenge on you at all times, especially just over Labor Day. In case we cross paths. Especially over Labor Day weekend. I mean, right. you don't know. A lozenge, a lozenge and a bow tie. And a bow tie. Mm. Undone. Undone. Yeah. Hey, I think I met Hernandez... Paul McCartney, and that that one didn't rattle me. See, that's what uh, I was just about to say. Like, I have to put Sir Paul McCartney on there because I was at work. But so this ties that... in, this ties into Sound City. <laughs> you just oh, tied into Sound that. City. Well, no, just because I was able to watch that documentary, Sound City. And by the way, the WTF Dave Grohl interview is a lovely companion piece. Yeah, that was terrific. So you should listen to that and then watch Sound City. And it's available on, like, Fios. Like, you can watch it, like, in theaters, but also on Fios sort of deal. And, uh, Pige, you would have loved this. I hunkered down. I tell my dad to drop DirecTV and go. That's where it gets Fios immediately. <laughs> it's like 1030 at night on Friday or Saturday night or whatever. Uh, you know, uh, everybody's asleep. And uh, I just I got it on the DVR. I popped a beer. I put the headphones on, you know, slid up in front of the TV. Big screen TV put on like a really good set of headphones, so I could make it loud, and um, wow, super enjoyable. And it of course culminates with him. Spoiler alert: with him uh, getting to play with Paul McCartney right. in the new studio with the knee board and the whole thing. And he, you know, Dave Grohl has that moment like I'm playing with Paul McCartney. Mm. Like this, I just yeah. It's Paul McCartney, like the reason I'm who I am as a musician and maybe as a person. 
You know what would make me cry? It's because of the Beatles, and I'm playing with this guy. I'm playing drums. I'll it was just so awesome. Yeah, you. I can't wait for you to see this. We're gonna need. You're gonna need a, just a separate podcast. Yeah. Because it, it's really good and it's really well done. And if you can, everybody, whoever's listening, go out and see it. Get you can get it online. Um, I think it's like thirteen bucks or something like that. It's so good and enjoyable and like just speaks to the idea of making music with people and you know you know what you're going to love the most about it peach you know the guy you're going to love the most besides rick springfield who comes off amazingly well yeah and and is really a good musician he really is uh is trent reznor you are gonna go Oh, you as was I. Skeptical now. You are gonna love. He's the guy who I have to bring into my. Really? Yep. You All are right. gonna love what Trent Reznor says about recording with the Neve and using technology to integrate to it, not to replace it. Oh, okay. I'm there. I'm there for that. Okay. Yes, and the track that he plays with Josh Holm from um, uh, Queens of the Stone Age, Grohl and him. It's just them in a room experimenting and just having a like just jamming is really really good. You know, really? the first time I ever got to work on a Neve board, um, I had our friend Mark take a picture. You had Passy take a picture of that. Yeah, I, I gave him my cell phone. I said, "You got to photograph me with this because I've where, never." Where did I, you I never... Did, you got to work on a Neve? Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. Where? Where is there one on the East Coast? Not only did I get to work uh, 50, 51st Street to 52nd Street. Not the place where we, we recorded that demo. No. No, that was not a neat board. <laughs> no, that was a board. Cal, that was a great recording session, though. That was a cool recording studio. Oh, did, oh, wait, wait. Do you know who I recorded through the Neve? Uh, no. Tony Danza. Samantha. He did not say that. I'm surprised at you. Jonathan, using the Neve board. We did some big band jazz with Tony oh, Jazz right. through right. the Neve, and it was awesome. You did Tony. It, it wasn't an album, though. Wasn't it for like a special or something? Uh, it was, yeah. He, he recorded um, uh, little segue pieces for, I think it was the New York City Marathon. Oh, Cal, that's magnificent, Cal. I, I I remember this story very well. That was a Neve board, huh? That was a Neve board. Wow. I'm surprised at you. And we went back We went back afterwards. This is getting a little bit <laughs> too inside. We went, we went back afterwards with some uh, tracks that Passy had with him. Right. Uh, and we, start, we started to put those through the, through the Neve board, too. You just to check it out through the Neve. Oh, Cal, this 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 board that we're talking about is central to Sound City. Yes, central to the documentary. Yep. And oh, you listened to the? I heard. Yeah, I heard. I heard him on WTF. Yeah. Well, for those of you who didn't, uh, who may still be listening, we're going to break this into two parts. We should do two parts. We'll do two. I, parts. Yeah, I think that's a logical. We're turning it to uh, that great moment in Ocean's Eleven. We need another guy. We should get another guy. Yeah, we'll get another guy. Um. But the Neve board is uh, at this recording studio in Los Angeles called, uh, called Sound City is a, a special a recording board, uh, sound board made by Rupert Neve. And there are very few of them 
I guess left, right, Peach? Like there's I mean this one was this one was very special because it was custom made for like seventy five thousand dollars in like nineteen seventy three. Right. Right. And, this, the, the one the one that we worked on was seventies also and it was handmade. Yeah. But I all don't these boards, think all these I don't think it was handmade. custom spec. I don't think right. it was a custom spec kneeboard, it was just one that he made. And you record to tape on these boards, and, and the sound is, is amazing. Um, but uh, you, you guys, yeah, must-see, please. I'm begging you. Uh, definitely check it out. I'm surprised at you. See? Angela, you look beautiful, especially through a Neve board. Now, I have to tell you, since we are talking about uh, <laughs> other podcasts, um, there is another great Mel Brooks interview that just happened. Uh oh. Um, on um, Nerdist. You yes, it's a Nerdist. Oh, okay. Yes, Cal is. I'm not so much. Well, Big on the Nerdist. Should, you should go check out some Nerdist because they did a great one. Nah, I'm a um, WTF guy. That's it. Now, all right. Well, be a jerk about it then. <laughs> now, WTF. Mel Brooks means so much to me, but if Mark Marin didn't talk to him, that I don't want to hear it. <laughs> But he followed up the interview with Mel Brooks with one with Carl Reiner. Yes, that's today's, which I haven't finished yet. Okay. I started it today and it was really good. I had no idea that Mel I had no idea that Mel Brooks grew up in Williamsburg. And he grew up on the he grew up on the south side. He grew up on South Fifth in the same neighborhood that my parents and grandparents and great grandparents all grew up in. So you guys will love this because you know my dad. Although those those of you out there don't, but my dad grew up in in uh, Brooklyn in Williamsburg Greenpoint area, and uh, went on to be a police officer there for 31 years on South Fifth and in Brooklyn. And I texted my dad while I'm listening to the Brooks podcast. And I go, Dad, did you know Mel Brooks was from the South Side? He grew up on South Fifth. My dad goes, Yeah, 365 South Fifth. Wow. <laughs> I, I guess he knew. He knew. <laughs> he did. It was great. I, I think what I like the most about it is that, uh, and Marin says this, there's a lot of stuff on Mel Brooks. He did his homework, and he tried to engage him and get him to talk about things that he doesn't talk about a lot. And he was that's successful. why. That's why that that it's a special one. Exactly. Because Marin took more care pre-interview yep. than he has ever done. I think with any guest. Absolutely. He was he was really really prepared. Yep. And and that's part of his thing. He doesn't prepare. You know, <clears throat> that's sort of right. part of the allure and the charm of the interviews is that they are very off the cuff. Usually it's somebody he knows. Um, you know, he did some prep for like Jonathan Winters. He did some prep for Shelley Berman. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh some of these guys, but nothing like this. And you could you could hear the reverence in his voice. But then, I mean, he did prep for Shelley Berman because he didn't know what exactly to ask him. He did prep for Mel Brooks because he did not want to conduct the same interview that everyone else conducted with him. Which exactly. Is, you know, let me set exactly up Mel right. Brooks to tell me a hilarious story. Yeah, that's exactly right. And he There's and enough he, of that out there. And he got it. He well, got it. it. Yeah. yeah. He got. He got. Cal, you're gonna go crazy. You're gonna love it. I never heard Mel Brooks say in any other interview, and I've been watching a bunch of them because he's all over the place right now. Yes. I've never seen another interview where he says, I'm so glad you brought that up. 
Yeah. You know? He yeah. says it to Marin over and over again. I'm so glad you're asking me these questions. There were a bunch of those. There were a bunch of, oh, wow, oh, you know, like like genuinely, like, surprised. Like, oh, I'm, yeah. that's what a Almost great question. Almost makes me want to prepare to do this show now. Because <laughs> of the results that he got. It, I feel yeah. as if now if I put at least four minutes into this thing, you might have a better uh, podcast. You don't prepare for our show? Let I think me tell you about Nerdist. The reason why you got to listen to Nerdist, in the last two weeks, they did Dave Grohl. Yep. It was an excellent interview. And Mark Hamill. Oh, boy. Well, that I have to listen to. Okay, fine. Yeah, speak out the Nerdist. And they did a fantastic one with Malcolm McDowell and Paul Williams. See, now you've lost me now. I can't. Paul Williams! Paul <laughs> Williams. I love, that. I love that that merited you yelling at me. Well, because I don't know. How how can you be lost on Paul Williams? The guy wrote Muppet Christmas Carol, dude. Okay. If I must. Cal, what were you going to say about PJ preparing for the show? I think that if you prepared for more than four minutes, it would feel too canned. And you'd lose that effect. Yeah, 335, right. tops. Four minutes is just way too much. No, if you put a good solid 245 together, I feel like we're in like Flynn. Here's the problem. When I put when I do too much prep and I cut up too many clips, I inject them into the show too often. And right. the show becomes me hitting the button because I'm so excited about the music clips. You can't help yourself. It's better when I have nothing. <laughs> right. That's true. That's a good I would idea. agree with that. You're one of the uh, the great improvisers. As we discussed yes. the last few weeks, you're you're one of the great ones. <laughs> Whenever you bring up improv, I'm just going to say yes. Yes, and. There it is. Yes. No, I'm never going to say it. Right. <laughs> so you uh, you were in uh, Vietnam. Yes. <laughs> we're standing here with the uh, world's preeminent doctor uh, of uh, breasts. Uh, doctor Breasts, uh, what do you do? Yes. Doctor Breasts. Best. He's throwing the best setups at me ever. Right. Will Arnett is like banging on my window. Let me in. I can take this. Like, no, I got it. Yeah. No, no, I got it. Yes. <laughs> Don't you want to say end after that or? No. <laughs> By okay. the way, the final, the uh, the tank. The tag on the improv group thing was PJ, you coming up with the home improv mint. Yeah. <laughs> they only do sketch comedy from Tim Allen routines. That's right. But Richard Karn is not allowed to be in the group. Right. <laughs> Everyone in the group can do Tim Allen's gorilla voice. <laughs> it's not yes and, it's oh. <laughs> PJ, final unload. No album this week. Oh, but I man. just want to say, if it snows real heavy, be safe. All right, a public service announcement. The more you know. And that's, and that's one to grow on. Thanks, Beach. <laughs> Cue the rainbow and the star. Cal, <laughs> final unload. I will take the recommendation angle this week from PJ and throw out a television show that just started last week that if you're not watching it, get in on it now because it's terrific. It's called The Americans on the FX network. It's about 
Russian spies living in Washington, D.C. in 1981. And it's and, fantastic. And you ready for this? Guess where it shoots. Where does it shoot? In Bayside. No kidding. They shot around the corner from me the other day. Really? Yep. Wow. Great show. They, they shot on Bell Boulevard. <laughs> they, they were, so that wasn't the Kremlin? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh, that's Donovan. <laughs> that's not Moscow? No. No, it's Queens. <laughs> you know, and I'm my, an expert on uh, 1980s Russian spies. I, you are? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. All right. I, I, well, we ran out of music. I don't have a final note. Fine. <laughs> you guys. Ruined it. Uh, I'd like to thank Rich Catino for joining us. We've been trying to get Rich for a really long time, and he was magnificent. I can't wait to listen back to this. <laughs> Everyone's leaving. No one's listening. <laughs> good night for the snacks. Okay, get, we finished the exit music. Just say good night, guys. Yes. Tell us <laughs> snow. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> good night, everyone. <laughs> Enjoy snowpocalypse. Good night. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.